VOCM presents Open Line. The opinions expressed on this show are not necessarily those of the station. And now your host, Patty Daly. Well, all right, and good morning to you. Thank you so much for tuning into the program. It's Thursday, November the 9th. This is Open Line. I'm your host, Patty Daly, and David Williams. He's produced the program. We're looking forward to speaking with you this morning on a topic of your choosing. So if you're in the St. John's metro region, the number to dial, 709-273-5211. Elsewhere, it's toll-free, long distance, one 590 vocm which is 8626. So yesterday morning, we were talking about the fact that for the first time in history, three Toronto Blue Jays were awarded a gold glove for their defensive prowess in this past Major League Baseball season. Not so long ago, we had a fella on the show named Ryan Sweeney. He's the president and founder of Premier Sports Academy. It's a softball and baseball training program. Out, it's a Paradise or CBS? Right here somewhere. Anyway. For the first time ever, a player who's been solely trained in this province didn't go elsewhere for any enhanced baseball training. Young fellow's name is Hudson White. So he has signed a letter of intent to play Division I NCAA baseball at Illinois State next year. Pretty cool. So, solely trained here. First player ever, apparently. That's pretty great stuff. Okay. So yesterday, big success with the Kids Eat Smart Radiothon. I mean, the generosity of people and businesses and service clubs and unions, it's just remarkable. So yesterday, a lot of legwork went into preparation for yesterday's Radiothon, but the tally still being counted, $379,500. Pretty great stuff. And of course, every dollar uh, gets a kid a breakfast, so pretty cool stuff. All right. Congratulations to Kids Eat Smart, and thanks to everyone who participated and made a donation. On the other side of that coin, or I guess maybe on the same side of the coin. So we were awaiting the province's announcement of the poverty reduction plan, and it happened yesterday afternoon. Three key focus areas, I think it's fair to say. Sustainable employment, improving income support systems, and of course, reducing childhood poverty. So they plan to spend about $85 million in new spending over the next two years. Here's some of the indicators. In 2015, the province had the third highest percentage of people in poverty. In 21, the province ranked seventh. Most recent figures, because I think sometimes we have an exaggerated understanding of just how many people in the province are on social assistance or on income support. The income support number, about 22,000 people. Currently on income support, 9,000 children living with uh, in low-income households. And we know that one in four children in the province lives in a food-insecure household. So here are some of the key things. The child benefit payment going to be increased by 300% significant. So that means that the non-taxable benefits paid monthly, right? So for children under the age of 18, payments jump from $921 for families with two children all the way to $3,684. Also extended the province's early childhood uh, nutrition supplement, 150 bucks a month. So help with ED, uh, healthy eating during pregnancy and until the child's first birthday, that's going to be expanded four more years until the child is five years old. So an additional 2,000 families will be uh, helped by this particular program. They're all also talking about, and this is a, one of the facts is unfortunately, inside the G7, Canada is the only country without a nationwide school lunch program. Inside this poverty reduction says the province's school lunch program will be expanded by need and capacity to all jun uh, junior kindergarten to grade nine schools. So that's going to begin next fall and cost about $10 million. There's some other issues there regarding fewer separate benefit rates, increased flexibility, so benefit amounts are less dependent on you know how you live, uh, cohabitation versus whoever qualifies to get the money, probably very helpful. One of the issues regarding some of the additional children and families that will be captured by these extensions is that the cutoff is still pretty low for eligibility. The cutoff's at $25,736. That's a pretty low threshold, but yes, these expansions do indeed help. 
the province had, well, I guess the House of Assembly consensus, 40 members all voted in favor of striking of the committee to look at universal basic income. And of course, that committee hasn't even come forward with recommendations. But the Premier yesterday, during the announcement, said when collapsing 30 programs into six, he believes this is a form of universal basic income. Advocates working in the sector, Laura Winters and Stella Circle, I heard from Dan Meads, they're pleased but maybe they think it's maybe only the first step. You know, I heard Sheldon Pollard from Choices for Youth say that he was surprised that it was ex- as expansive as it was. So it's probably a very good thing. You know, we'll harken back and wonder why the poverty reduction plan that was in place, that was working extremely well, kind of fell off the radar or went by the wayside. But this is a step forward. Dealing with poverty-related issues, you know, I will inevitably get feedback saying, you know, socialism, we're just throwing money around. Poverty comes with an enormous cost. It comes with enormous costs in the budget. It comes with enormous costs societally, and no matter how you slice it, even if we just talk about health care. Because inside the social determinants of health, poverty is one of the key social indicators about the frequency or the severity of interaction with the health care system, which costs us about $4 billion. So a lot inside this particular pot of money. They're also going to expand comfort allowance benefits. People who are living in shelters aren't on the traditional income support. They get what's called a comfort benefit. That's going to be increased from 125 a month to 175 a month. And then there's some more announcements coming regarding seniors. There's some more employment benefits type of stuff in here. I will p- kind of break it down as we try to invite people on the program who work in these different sectors regarding poverty and poverty reduction measures. But it's getting a Thumbs up, I think, from people who work in the sector. I'm still trying to digest all the ins and outs of it, but you want to take it on. We can do it. And, of course, inside that was an expansion for healthy eating, which I think is good. But then you go to what we're all still dealing with is the stubborn food inflation. Right off the bat, federal government intervention in this stuff really never works. And so with all the big five leaders, CEOs, were asked to come and testify in front of the House of Commons Committee. And the thought was that they were going to be forced, whatever that means, to stabilize food prices by Thanksgiving. Thanksgiving has come and gone. Food prices have tempered. They're not coming back to earth. And of course, we all know the concept of paying for less product with the same price that we were paying pre this inflationary stubborn times. So what they were trying to do here is uh, create what's called a grocery code of conduct. So it's basically about controlling fees between the, uh, the suppliers and the retailer. Well, I guess the, the retailer charges fees to the supplier. So, of course, there's going to be pushback from business. It's pretty predictable stuff. Notably, two of the biggest ones, Loblaws and Walmart. Loblaws Company Limited says it would raise food prices for Canadians by more than $1 billion. And currently, that grocery retailer cannot condone the code of conduct as it's currently structured. Walmart Canada said pretty much the same thing. Walmart is conscious of adding unnecessary burdens that would increase the cost of food to Canadians, especially during inflationary times. All right, but then the folks who are actually involved in creating this code of conduct, they're pretty clear. So they say there's no real evidence to back up that $1 billion. And of course, the big companies say the quiet parts out loud. Any impact on their profitability will simply be passed along to consumers. Now, just like I said off the bat, federal government intervention in trying to control food prices directly is probably a bit of a fool's errand, but You know, when the big companies, who stand to lose the most, predictable. You could have written this script well before there was ever a news release from Walmart or a news release from Loblaws. So, and here's the quote coming from 
the gentleman at the helm, that's Michael Graydon, the CEO of the Food, Health and Consumer Products of Canada Association. He says there's absolutely no evidence to suggest the code would either raise food prices or negatively impact the retailer's ability to meet consumer needs. So, yeah, how that's going to play out, don't know. But they will say, quite clearly, that unless all the big ones, because the big five companies that control 80% of the market, if some or all of them don't sign on, then this will have little to no impact on the prices that are being charged to Canadian consumers. Anyway, there you go. Stick with food, although be it with a different angle. So, <laughs> the Environment Commissioner here in the country has written a report saying that the uh, Department of Fisheries and Oceans just does a poor job in monitoring the commercial fishery. So, that, name, uh, that fellow's name is Jerry DeMarco. So, they say that the D uh, DFO lacks the ability to collect timely, dependable data just on how much product is being caught. I mean, how could that be? You know, they say inside of all the species, there is either antiquated systems, integration software, and what have you, and we just don't know how much product is being caught. Now, DFO has said they agree with everything that's inside this report. I mean, one of the, I guess, the stark examples of overfishing and mismanagement and not having a clear idea of what was caught, they point clearly to the fishing moratorium in 1992 in this province. The biggest layoff in Canadian history. 30,000 people were displaced from their jobs. So it did away with about seven. $700 million worth of enterprises. How can we be in a place where we don't really understand exactly what we're doing in, you know, whether it be anecdotal catch rates, but actual compilation of landed product tonnage? Anyway, so DFO says they understand and agree that this is a problem. And then they also talk about the fact that there's going to be uh, new implementation to uh, adhere to all the recommendations, even when it comes to integrating information across the regions. So here we go. As of this year, none of Canada's 156 federally managed commercial stocks has been assessed for adequate monitoring, so says the report. Inside that world, and this is not an implication or a finger point about what goes on every single dock and every single landing, but there has been a DFO monitor charged with a variety of offenses. So five criminal counts, two counts of fraud, one count of breach of trust by public officer, and two related to forged or falsified documents, basically being accused of taking crab as a bribe to falsify the documents. So I don't know how widespread or prevalent this might be, and none of these charges have been proven in court, but that's the allegation. It took place over the course of two and a half years, between the 1st of January 21 and June 7 of this year. In addition to those charges, three charges filed in August against the gentleman, his name is Scott Fortune, under the Fisheries Act. So he made false or misleading statements to a fisheries officer, gave the fishery officer records that contained false or misleading information, also accused of processing snow crab that was caught in contravention of the Fisheries Act. And yes, all allegations at this moment in time, but certainly, you know, shining a light on things that have to be done much more professionally and adherence to legislation and the criminal code when we talk about these types of matters. Her terrible news regarding the Harbor Grace shipyard. So it's Harbor Grace Ocean Enterprises. So it's said that they are the largest ship repair and building yard in Eastern Canada. They've got 56 full-time employees. So they do uh, marine vessel repair, refit, construction, and the unfortunate reality facing these folks, they had to go to court to get uh, creditor protection. They're $16 million in debt. They've seen revenue go up 34% to more than $10 million last year, but the profits plummeted 33%. Why? Because m like many businesses, they found themselves, before these massive inflation pressures, they had a bunch of fixed price contracts.
And so, yeah, revenue up, but the profit's way down. One of the owners is injecting some of his own money to try to keep the doors open, try to find a pathway forward. But in a province like ours, you would think that shipbuilding would even be a bigger enterprise, a bigger industry than it currently is. So fingers crossed for the folks out in Harbor Grace, because you imagine inside that workforce of 56, there would be some significantly well-paid jobs as skilled trades peoples. So we'll keep an eye on that, but wish them nothing but the best of luck. A quick sip of coffee, one second. Welcome back. Okay. So we talk about health care shortages across the board. Add to it now, pharmacists. News released this morning from the, uh, the Pharmacists Association Newfoundland and Labrador panel. They put out a survey in 2022, and the result is they see a shortage of approximately 100 pharmacists in the province. So it goes on to say quite clearly, this level of demand exceeds current supply. There's three recommendations that they've made, and I won't go through them now because we're expecting a call uh, from Dr. Cara O'Keefe. She's a pharmacist and, of course, a board member at panel. We're expecting to speak with uh, Cara O'Keefe at around 10 o'clock. To tell us exactly what this means in real terms, because when we know if you don't have an emergency room doctor or a shortage of nurses or LPNs or nurse practitioners, whatever the case may be, we'll see rotating hours at emergency rooms or closures of emergency rooms. What this shortage means for pharmacy operations across the province, we'll let Carol Keith fill us in. But with all the other disciplines where we talk about the shortages, now add pharmacists to that conversation. We'll speak with uh, Carol Keith coming up. Stick with healthcare for a bit. So this is a report coming from the OECD, and the OECD is, of course, the Organization for Economic Cooperation and Development. They're talking about the fact that, as a country, we do better than average on three-quarters of the health status indicators, including life expectancy, preventable death from lung cancer, heart attacks, and strokes. Where we come up short is factors regarding opioid deaths and access to care. We don't really talk about this enough because a lot of people, it's, you know, turned a blind eye, a deaf ear, and look down our nose at people who are suffering from addictions. Some people have it in their mind that there's only the lowest of the low, the scum of the scum are the people who are addicted, but that's patently untrue. Here's some of the measures where we did score well. So we can talk about the opioid crisis and opioid-related deaths and overdoses. We see it right across the country. You know, the numbers from B.C. are just overwhelming. So here's where we've also done okay, though. So smoking prevalence, 8.7% compared with the OECD average of 16. Fruit and vegetable consumption, five or more servings per day. Some of these things will be compromised with the price of food, no doubt. We're doing well in appropriate low prescribing of antibiotics. The country and this province had a huge issue with over-prescribing antibiotics. Apparently, that's being brought back to earth. Delivering urgent surgery for hip fractures within two days. In comparison to achieve public health spending and publicly funded health care, compared to the OECD average, Canada's problems include diabetes being slightly more prevalent, opioid deaths, satisfaction with the availability of quality health care. So they go on to say, and directly related to the poverty reduction plan, is that poverty you know, how do you address poverty? Because poverty has a direct relation with all of these complicated issues inside of healthcare. So they go on to say that, you know, to paraphrase, there's no such thing with eradicating poverty, but reducing the numbers of people who are living in poverty conditions and or working poor or precariously close to that line it has an impact again on healthcare. So it's not about throwing money around for the sake of, it's not about expansion of what people might refer to as socialist policies, because if you care about where your tax dollars go, you care about how much you pay, which I do, then getting it right 
with issues regarding poverty will save us all a ton of money. So the OECD chiming in. One more on healthcare, and I guess this dovetails back to the pharmacies. Minister of Health Community Services Tom Osborne is open to the fact that there might be an opportunity to expand access to naloxone kits. We're one of the only provinces in the country that does not have easy access free of charge at a pharmacy. He's open to it. He does go on to say that there are some hundred organizations, a hundred places where you can get a naloxone kit. And that, of course, is not enabling anyone to do drugs. That's keeping people from dying, unbeknownst to them, with some toxicity inside whatever drug of choice they're using. Anyway, you want to take any of that stuff on? We can do it. A couple of federal notes before we get... I shouldn't be laughing. Federal notes before we get to your call. So the Speaker of the House of Commons, Greg Fergus, was unable to determine, he says, whether or not Ken McDonald, the member for Avalon, uh, gave the finger to the Conservative side of the House. So... In addition to that, and this is where politics has become really quite brutal, is because of the finger, whether or not you think he did it or he carefully cloaked it, whatever your stance on it is or whatever political ideology you hold, Mr. McDonald stood in the House yesterday and reported the fact that he's getting threats of violence, threats against his constituency office, death threats. If that's the worst thing that's ever happened in politics in this country, I'll be a monkey's uncle. Yes, inappropriate. Yes, they shouldn't be doing it. Yes, they should all polish up their behavior and grow up and be more mature inside the House of Commons and I would say inside the House of Assembly. But for the two-finger scratch, whether or not you think it was an implied or a carefully cloaked finger, death threats for that, I mean, just speaks volumes as to where we are as a country, politically speaking. A couple more quick ones, very quick one. Members of Parliament have now agreed to launch a study into some $300 million that the federal government paid to a Quebec-based pharmaceutical company called Medicago. So initially it was $150 million in the form of a non-refundable advanced purchase agreement, and this was for COVID-19 vaccines. Then there was another $173 million for research and development and construction of the company's facility. Problem is, Medicago is no longer... Not one dose of the vaccine ever made it to the market. And so this kind of stuff was buried deep down in the document. And yes, we should absolutely be looking at this. The government defends itself by saying, no crystal ball, couldn't predict the future. This is at a time when the country, whether or not you're pro or anti, doesn't matter about vaccines. They were saying people were clamoring for it, and they're right. I mean, remember when some of the politics around it, surrounding the creation of the vaccine, was like, we're not going to get one until 2027 or 2028 and all the rest of it. So we spent huge money. But there's absolutely the requirement to understand $300 million out for absolutely zero in return. Then they go on to talk about even the WHO, they refused to give emergency approval for this particular vaccine because one of the minority stakeholders was Big Tobacco, Philip Morse. Philip Morse has now divested its stake in it, but then goes on to talk about where's the intellectual property? Who has it? You know, it was bought up by another company, and so they're, they're still the holder of the proprietary information, and so chasing them around. So the government can defend itself, but $300 million out. Zero in. They're also talking about, and rightfully so, $54 million to create the Arrive Can app, which was, of course, controversial at the time. It cost $54 million. Whether or not that's an appropriate amount of money for an app, it sounds like a lot of money, but they're looking at that as well. Uh, very quickly, congratulations to NTV News anchor and longtime legislative reporter Michael Connors with his new book called Admit Strangers. It's a look back at the history of the press gallery, so congratulations to Michael. That'll be a page turner for so many political watchers here in the province. We're on Twitter. 
or VOCM Open Line. Follow us there. Email address is openline at VOCM.com. When we come back, let's have a great show. There was a question posed yesterday about a caller about the implications uh, for people working extended shifts, like nurses. He was talking about the fact that he worked on a fishing vessel, and their workers' compensation coverage went away after they worked so many continuous hours. He wondered whether or not that was an issue regarding the province of registered nurses, where we talk about extended shifts as long as maybe 24 hours. That and many other nurse, nursing-related matters we'll discuss with the president of the Registered Nurses Union. That's Yvette Coffee coming up right after this. Don't go away. Welcome back to the show. Let's begin this morning on the top of the board online. Line, everyone. So good morning to the president of the Registered Nurses Union of Newfoundland and Labrador. That's Yvette Coffey. Good morning, Yvette. You're on the air. Good morning, Patty. Interesting question posed by a caller yesterday about workers' compensation. He says as his in his job as a fisherman, if they worked over 18 hours straight, then workers' compensation refused to cover them because they were a danger to themselves and to others. What's the workers' uh, compensation implication with nurses who work these extremely long shifts? Well, I'm not sure uh, whether there's legislation around maximum number of hours worked in the fishery, but I do know that there is no legislation around maximum hours of work in healthcare, and that if someone does get injured um, on the job, they are covered by our workers' compensation system. How prevalent are workplace injuries amongst registered nurses? Because they've got a lot of physical work. You know, it's not just about uh, taking your vitals and delivering uh, medicines, what have you. They do some real physical work. And, of course, when you're 18 hours in, physical work becomes potentially dangerous. So how common are workplace injuries? Um, in the healthcare sector, we have the highest numbers of workplace injuries and workers' compensation claims in Newfoundland and Labrador of all industries. Uh, we also have the highest rates of uh, violence um, in uh, the workplace as well. So give us some, uh, some examples. So, I mean, people will hear that and say, well, are these examples possibly on a dementia ward where someone who doesn't really know what they're doing? Or do we see other forms of uh, violence that are on purpose and willfully done? Well, while uh, we do have a high incidence of the workplace injuries in long-term care, and a lot of that is about the physical um, aspect of the work um, and also you know you are working uh, with some patients who have dementia but we also have incidents of violence uh, just recently in the past few months in an emergency department we had a registered nurse have her nose broke by a patient and then had to care for that patient uh, for the rest of her shift Amazing stuff. And to know that healthcare workers uh, lead the league in workplace injuries and claims with workplace uh, for compensation is really quite something. Inside the world of recruitment, you know, the province reports that there was possibly some 200 nurses have been recruited. I can't remember if they say they were all from India, but the recruitment numbers that they report, it wasn't all, all people on the ground here. Then there was the complication between India and Canada relations and the problems with visas. Can you give us an update about how many nurses have been recruited, whether it be from India or otherwise, in the last 12 months? So the last nursing supply report we had was in April, and we still had um, over 750 registered nurse vacancies in the province of Newfoundland and Labrador. We have been updated by NL Health Services, uh, the new amalgamated health authority, that yes, there are upwards of 200 uh, registered nurses from India. There was some delay with the visas and that, but that has uh, kind of worked itself out. But the work continues, even... Um, they couldn't go there on the ground to interview people and get their credentials done, but they were actually doing it virtually. Um, so we're not expecting to see any of these registered nurses, um, to my knowledge, of the 200 until spring uh, at the earliest. 
I know this is not your ballywick or it's not inside your mandate because you register, you represent registered nurses, but when we talk about trying to fill the gaps and the province is going to entertain a pilot program regarding physician's assistance, some of this work might be uh, already being done by registered nurses. Any thoughts on the implementation or the inclusion of physician assistance? Well, to my knowledge, and I have had a discussion with the Premier on this, um, we do know that physicians are used in a few other provinces uh, throughout Canada. They are not autonomous. They cannot make decisions themselves or work alone. They work under the supervision of a physician, whereas our nurse practitioners are independent and work independently to diagnose, order uh, diagnostic tests and treat patients. So I don't see it as a benefit to the entire healthcare system. Um, I think we're better off investing our money in more nurse practitioners, which is something the health court and our recommendations um, recommended upwards of 70 nurse practitioners for care of the aged. Well, I'd like to get an update on the fact that the province was going to expand scope of practice for registered nurses, including allowed to prescribe medication, refer patients to specialists, but it came with additional requirement. I think it was three different training modules. We were unsure how that would be done, whether it be on the job or additional hours. We were unsure whether it be uh, an increase in the rate of pay for registered nurses and nurse practitioners. What do we know? Where are we with that particular expansion? Well, nurse practitioners already prescribe. Yeah, I, I didn't mean to say that. Registered yeah. nurses. So it's only about the registered nurses. And from my, um, from what I've heard, there's, um, I think it's approximately between eight and ten, I think, um, who registered nurses who have enrolled uh, to do these three learning modules, which is on their own hours. They're paying for it um, themselves as a present, but there was a grant because Lab Grenfell is the area where these registered nurses are uh, coming forward to do it right now, and they actually had a grant. Um, to pay for the learning modules. There is no increase in pay once these modules are done, unless there's a job reclassification done. I do know there is a lot of interest from around the province. However, I, from what I hear, they're waiting to see how these first group uh, make out and how it actually works before uh, they entertain adding more registered nurses to do prescribing. So would these RNs who have enrolled basically be working in more rural remotes of the province where it could be very helpful for their practice to be expanded? Most definitely. You know, we think about uh, our diabetic educators. Uh, they're teaching patients about uh, how much insulin to take, you know, how much, how many carbs to take, what to do if your sugar goes up or it goes low. Uh, they have that expertise, and giving them the ability to be able to prescribe for these patients would be a great benefit not only to the patients, but time-wise for the registered nurses. There was also consideration to include this into the curriculum at the Centre for Nursing Studies. Has that been done, or is that still something that's just being thought of? Uh, to my knowledge, that has not been introduced into the curriculum yet. Anything else you'd like to add this morning, Yvette? I'd like to talk about the um, announcement that Minister Osborne made this week about the Centres of Excellence in Aging. Good. Um, you know, I was part of the Health Corps Task Force where the recommendation was for 70 nurse practitioners. And that wasn't 70 nurse practitioners in long-term care. That was 70 nurse practitioners in community, in acute care, um, in the long-term care facilities for the continuum of care. So if a elderly patient comes into an emergency department, um, you know, the number one thing priority is to get people back into their home. 
to let people age gracefully, which is what we all want. And with the nurse practitioners, they're following them through the system. If they're admitted in acute care, then to be followed, uh, okay, how do we get them home? What do we need to do to get these people to their their maximum health and ability to stay at home? and to follow them through the system. And I did not hear any mention of that in the announcement um, this past week. And I'd also like to talk about, uh, I was just listening to a podcast this morning by COO of Lab Grenfell's Own about the inpatient psychiatric unit. The positions are not filled. Let's be very clear for registered nurses. They're actually bringing in agency nurses. Um, it's very difficult to recruit any healthcare professionals in the lab, uh, the lab Grenfell zone. And one of our recommendations has been, and we've had discussion with the health authority and with the leadership of Lab Grenfell, we should be looking at the Lab Grenfell zone as a territory where there are increased salaries, increased incentives and bonuses for people to go and work in the northern region. There was a lot of stuff that people are anticipating to be included in the most recent, a couple of announcements, whether it be on healthcare and inside the poverty reduction. So I'm glad you put that on my radar so I can do the follow-up. And I appreciate your time this morning, Yvette. Thank you. You're welcome. Have Take a good care. day. You too. Bye-bye. Yvette Coffey is the president of the Registered Nurses Union of Newfoundland and Labrador. Let's take a break. When we come back, Freeman's in the queue to talk about some uh, hobbies that can be very helpful for your brain. Don't go away. Nutrition, exercise, keeping the cold at bay. Whatever keeps you feeling great, the Wellness and Healthy Lifestyle Show on your VOCM. Welcome back to the program. Let's go to line number two. Good morning, Freeman. You're on the air. Good morning, Patty. Good morning to you. Welcome uh, to the show. I'm, uh, I'm calling just to make a comment on the gentleman yesterday that, uh, that published uh, volume two of his new Newfoundland word book. <laughs> yep. Word fine is called? Yeah, his name is Nick Cranford from Flanker Press. Uh, Dick who? It's Nick. Nick Cranford, Flanker Press. Nick, Cran- Nick Cranford, okay. Yep. No, I, um, I want to, to congratulate him, and that uh, the book to me is very, very educational uh, because I do hundreds and hundreds of word finds and crosswords and everything else. And it's a very educational book. It is a very excellent book for. Any kid who wants to start out doing those word find books, uh, word find, because it is not complicated. Everything is, is, is listed in one line. Like there's not too many there that a letter is connected to another word. They're all half separate. And I thought it was very, very nice. And I just like to congratulate him. I just wondered years ago why someone else in Newfoundland hadn't come up with a with a book like, like this, right? Because there's plenty of words in Newfoundland that we find in puzzles. 100%, you're right, because word search uh, books are very common, but no one had this particular idea. It was right there and an easy one for Nick to grab onto. And, you know, even some of the historical word search puzzles, like there's one about Beaumont Tamil, and then there's about other local organizations and sports teams. So there is some learning to be oh. had inside this book. Yeah, there's everything into it. I mean, there's all kinds of animals, there's well-known people, the Newfoundland Dictionary, place names, bays, and everything. everything is into it, right? Yeah, great. There's 140 puzzles inside the book, and they're selling them hand over fist. Good for him. Well, I bought, the, I bought, volume, I bought volume 1. I haven't seen volume 2 yet, but I bought volume 1. I thought it was 
and the most interesting uh, world time you ever did. Terrific. Freeman, do you do it simply as a hobby that you enjoy, or is it something you do consciously? Because I read a bit about this stuff, and I know a couple of folks who are specifically doing things like Lumosity and crosswords and Sudokus and word searches for brain training, because there's some well-documented medical science out there talking about the health of your brain, doing some of these types of puzzles, and maybe staving off some related brain function loss as you grow older. Do you do it on purpose or do you just do it for fun? I, I do it for fun, plus I do it for the, the health benefits because I, I can tell you I'm, I'm 75 years old and you're doing those puzzles. Then, I mean, my brain is alert now as it was 20 years ago. I mean, I got no sign of Alzheimer's or anything like that, right, or dementia. So I got a feeling that it is a good thing for you know, middle-aged people to start out doing too, along with that. Absolutely, and they even talk about for even children when you're trying to develop your problem-solving skills and your attention span. You know, things like Sudoku is one of the go-to that they talk about, even for kids. It makes all the sense in the world to me. I spend the vast majority of my day reading. Maybe I should incorporate some of these types of things so I can try to remain sharp, even though that I don't feel quite as sharp as I used to. So, uh, Freeman, I'm sure Mr. Cranford and everyone at Flanker Press will be quite pleased with your approval of uh, Volume 1, and I'm sure you're going to get Volume 2. Oh, yes, I'm going to get the Volume 2 right now. Well, thanks very much, Paddy. Good to have you on, Freeman. Thank you. Okay, bye-bye. Bye-bye. How common do you think that is out there? Because the science is pretty clear about things regarding brain function loss and brain training games is what they call them. You know, some some of the big ones out there, Happy Neuron, Lumosity. Then the basics, the crosswords, the word searches, and then the Sudokus and the world. I I would imagine that plenty of folks are taking it and using those games for that exact reason on top of the hobby and the fun. Let's go to line number one. Caller, you're on the air. Good morning, line number one caller. You're on the air. Uh, Patty, yes, thanks for taking my call. No problem. Uh, Patty, I'm wondering this morning there. I, I live in Central Newfoundland. I called a, uh, a reputable company here in Gander this morning about, about the uh, carbon tax on home eating fuel. Right. And to their knowledge, there has not been any change or the tax has not been taken off home eating fuel. And I'm wondering where that situation lies because they were saying on the, on November 9th that was the day that the tax was to be dropped from all the fuel. That's right. I was told, I went directly to the federal government on that one, and I was told that carve-out on home heating fuel uh, would happen today. So if the companies don't know that that's officially happened today and they've been provided the mechanism, I'm not sure what to say because today is the day. So I was told. That's true, sir. And and and, uh, and as far as uh, they know, they're, they they haven't been informed of anything on it whatsoever. And so I'm wondering if it's uh, maybe at the end of the day or the start of the day. You know that it, this would have happened. Now you're going to try to make some calls and find out. But I'm just wondering if you might have had any information on any changes to it or not. You know. All I had was that November 9th would be the day where it would be carved out. With the timing as to whether or not first thing in the morning or the last uh, at the end of business, I'm not sure, but I can find out. Okay, sir. I appreciate that very much, Patty, and uh, and uh, thank you again for taking my call. I, I was I was waiting this day to get uh, Philip uh, 
oil because no doubt that tax I think is up around uh, 17 cents or whatever. Yep. And uh, on a tank of oil, it's a substantial amount of money, especially your senior. Uh, absolutely, 100% it is. People send me screenshots of their receipts or their bills for filling up their tank. And, you know, I see numbers like $275 all associated with that tax. So, yeah, inside the world of trying to fill an empty oil tank has a big implication, no doubt about it. I will find out as quickly as I can about exactly when today and if it's going to happen today where it gets carved out. I'll find it out as soon as I can. Very good, sir. Thank you very much, Patty. You have a nice one. And same to you, sir. Thanks for the call. Okay. Bye-bye. All right, bye-bye. So if you're a constituency assistant in particular, doesn't matter if you're uh, Mr. Wagg working in Clifford Small's office or one of the liberal constituency assistants and or a member, if you can give us that information, because that's important. There was undoubtedly going to be people who are sitting back and waiting to know that that carbon tax is off home heating fuel before they call their supplier, get their tank filled. So we'll try and figure that out right away. Let's go to line number three. Good morning, caller. You're on the air. This is me. That would be you. Welcome to the show. Good morning, Patty. Good morning. Um, I just, I want to remain anonymous. Um, this morning, it, it's on my mind that um, there just seems no government funding to help anybody out on government disability. Um, so, I've been waiting and waiting to hear something. I know there's been a little bit of help from the tax portion, but... There's there's no in between for funding for anybody on provincial disability, and it's it's starting to really get to me this morning. <laughs> you take your time. We'll get through this. So, what is there a specific type of funding you're looking for, or is it just general access to money? Are you talking about home modification or vehicle funding, or is there something specific? Because if there is, I can try to help you. It's it's I'm I'm so grateful that I didn't qualify for Canada pension disability, so I had no choice but to be unprovincial. But it's like my rent went up. I didn't complain, but there's no there's no funding like to help with anything extra. Like I had to let cable go. I had you know it's just. There's always help for somebody else, but nobody on disability. I know federally there's some changes coming to disability pensions, and that bill, I think, is almost ready to be given royal assent. So have you spoken with any of the advocacy groups, like including the Coalition of Persons with Disabilities? Not yet. Okay. I think you should do that because there are a bunch of inclusion grants and home modification and accessibility funds, those types of things. I don't know if there's such a thing as simply an additional special assistance pot of money. I think there probably is, but it might be uh, specifically for medical equipment or supplies or what have you. But I'm going to give you a number. I want you to call uh, CODNL because they'll be the experts in exactly what is available to uh, folks like you. So would you like me to give you that number? I still have to pay for medication. I still, I need socks, compression socks, and I have to pay over $100 for them. I don't understand. I would like to put you in touch with that group. Would you like me to give you their number? Because they'll know every pot of money that's out there, and they might be able to uh, provide you some additional assistance. I'm not saying they will, because I don't know, but I can certainly give you uh, contact information if you'd like it. I would appreciate that. Okay. So if you just want to call them, it's, of course, area code 709 and 
And so that's the Coalition of Persons with Disabilities. Uh, hopefully they have some help for you with a specific pot of money that I might not be aware of. And we do know that there are some changes coming to things like disability pensions in this country. But let me know how you make out. If you don't have any luck or any satisfaction, we'll see what else we can figure out. How does that pay in effect to anyone on provincial disability if it's CPP? There's just a change coming to the amount of money coming for disability pensions and eligibility requirements, is my understanding. It's not finalized, so I don't think anyone has all the details because it hasn't passed all the way through. But we will follow that up. And if you call that number and speak with someone this morning, if you don't have any luck, you get back to me and I'll try to figure something else out. Thank you, Patty. Good luck. Thank you. You're welcome. Bye-bye. Have a good day. You too. Bye-bye. So, yeah. We try to have as much information as we can at the tip of our finger or tip of my tongue or somewhere in the recesses of my brain. But there are different disability support models out there. So if I don't have it right in front of me, we'll try to put you on to the people who do have it and the people who can help you out. And in this case, uh, Cottonelle does really great work, right? So that's the Coalition of Persons with Disabilities. And we have them on every now and then to talk about where some of the shortcomings are. We did have conversations regarding uh, accessibility related matters with the minister responsible a couple of days ago and so that is on our radar and because when we're talking about the uh, uh, people with disabilities some you can see some you can't. So there might be upwards of 20 percent of the population has some form of disability which requires some form of additional support whether it be provincial monies and or federal monies. Uh, let's go ahead and take a break. Dave are we going to have that St. John's related house conversation oh uh, pushed to tomorrow okay so and inside that world of housing lots of big announcements coming of course and they're coming fast and furious will they add up to getting us where we need to go we brought forward the concept of tiny homes and modular homes that'll be part of the conversation we have regarding the fact that the province has opened up i think some 23 parcels of land uh incorporating some 325 hectares most of it on the northeast of avalon, avalon peninsula a lot of it in town some out in paradise i think it was two parcels of paradise three out in cbs we want to understand what the blend of that housing looks like you know they're going to the private developers to see who'd like to access some of the money that's been applied for from the federal government and the housing accelerator fund of which there's four billion dollars there so lots of moving parts in the housing conversation and we can talk about whatever you want to talk about right after this don't go away Welcome back to the program. Just some clarification about what's happening out at the Harbor Grace Ocean Enterprises. And this is directly from the company itself. So only part of the story they think is being told. So what they want to highlight is one of the owners stepping in to secure the jobs and the projects ongoing for Harbor Grace after being away for two years. The creditor protection is basically uh, an opportunity for them to restructure the company and get all those people that are out there continue to be gainfully employed. It goes on to say that basically inside the creditor protection, which absolutely just seems, means the opportunity to restructure, they're going back in to buy out for operations from the other owners. So a positive thing coming from what is a precarious financial position. So they're using what you know is referred to as the DIP loan. That's the debtor in possession loan. And that's coming from one of the owners himself. I believe his name out of it. I don't know if he wants me to put it in there, but well, it's in the news story. So Kevin English is uh, leaning in on this one to make sure that there's a viable future for the Harbor Grace shipyard. Today might be a good one to get on the show. If you're in and around town, 709-273-5211. Elsewhere, toll-free long distance, 1-888-590-VOCM, which is 86. 
26, something I should have brought up off the top because this is a big one. We all know the implications regarding the supply and confidence agreement between the federal NDP and the federal liberals. It's the only reason that the federal liberals are still in power. So I don't know what it means for NDP supporters. They're getting attention to some of the issues that they think are extremely important and that the NDP has been talking about for a long time. Dental care, obviously. Now we understand there's going to be new legislation tabled in the House of Commons regarding uh, replacement workers. They'll call it anti-scab legislation. So the details are unknown. Some sources that some media outlets have are trying to, you know, try to get in front of this and get some details. But here's basically what we know. The NDP, over the last 15 years, have tried to have a vote on the floor of House of Commons about anti-scab or replacement worker legislation. Every single time, the Liberals and the Conservatives voted against it. So this is big for the Labour movement. Some would suggest it doesn't go far enough, but what it basically will cover is federally regulated workplaces. And not all federally regulated workplaces, even including the private sector, not every employee is unionized. So whether there's a strike and or a lockout, if this legislation passes, which it will, because if the federal liberals are bringing it forward, they'll automatically get support from the NDP. And consequently, this bill will see the light of day. People, there's a bit of a misunderstanding, and even when it was the conversation about sick days, you know, 10 sick days for people working in federally regulated industries and workplaces. Here are some of the areas that that covers. Air, air transportation, so airlines, airports, all aircraft operation, banks, including authorized foreign banks, things like in the agricultural world, grain elevators, feed and seed mills, feed warehouses, uh, most crown corporations, which includes Canada Post, all the port services, and that's a big one too because we just went through a big uh, strike out of Vancouver. Port services, marine shipping, ferries, tunnels, canals, bridges, pipelines that cross international or provincial borders. It also covers postal and courier services. Also includes radio and television broadcasting, railways that cross over provincial borders, uh, telecommunications, internet, telegraph, cable systems, telephone operations, uranium mining and processing, atomic energy, and every business. Here's the catch-all. And any business that is vital or essential or integral to the operation of one of the following activities. Uh, the Federal Public Service, Parliament, which includes the Senate, the House of Commons, and the Library of Parliament, private sector firms and municipalities in Yukon, Northwest Territories, and Nunavut. So that table, uh, that legislation will indeed be tabled, and when it is, it will quickly make it through the House of Commons because it obviously has support of the federal NDP. You wonder if that will be enough, because I would imagine there's some fractures amongst the NDP and the Liberal relationship, certainly with NDP supporters happy enough to get some of the things that they hold near and dear to their heart. But you wonder, will it take the ultimate? Because, yes, the NDP have put forward this motion eight times over the last 15 years and always lost. But I would think the biggest thing on their political agenda is universal pharmacare. There was the thought that they would hold government's feet to the fire, that if it was not brought forward by the end of 2023, that might see the end of the relationship between the two parties and the erosion of their supply and confidence agreement. So we'll see, but it looks like anti-scab or replacement worker legislation is indeed coming. Let's go to line number one. Say good morning to the artistic director at Persistence Theatre. That's Jen Dion. Good morning, Jen. You're on the air. Good morning, Patty. How are you today? Not too bad. Thank you. How about you? Oh, I'm very well, thank you. Um, So we are a hub of activity over here at Persistence Theatre. As your listeners may know, we are a feminist charity locally here in St. John's. We use the power of professional storytelling to help change hearts and minds. 
So one of the ways that we pay for our stuff is by holding our big annual gala every year. It's well known in town now. It's normally called the Pink Tie Gala, you know, our little cheeky switch on black tie. But for this year, we're calling it the Rainbow Tie Gala next weekend because our whole season next year is going to uplift and amplify queer stories. Give us an example of what's coming in that envelope. We ha- well, we have two professional theatre productions. The first one is Leave of Absence by Lucia Frangioni, and that looks at a coming-out story of a young person who's being raised in a Catholic-based community and their coming-out story, and it's how are they supported or not by the people that surround them, their priest, their teacher, their parents, that kind of thing. So we feel that that's a very resonant tale for Newfoundland and Labrador. And then in September, we're going to do Diane Flax's play called Unholy. And that is set in the form of a debate where there are four women debating, uh, should women abandon religion? Like, does feminism exist in a religious context? And this story looks at these four women and their experiences. And uh, we love it because on one side, there's an ex-Catholic nun, Irish Catholic nun. Don't have any of those around here, you know. Uh, Then we have an atheist lesbian. Then we have a devout young Muslim lawyer who is also queer. And then we also have a devout um, uh, Orthodox Jew woman. So, I mean, we actually programmed this before the conflict in the Middle East, but it resonates on all kinds of themes. But in terms of queerness, it's important to look that, you know, um, queer people in our community can come from any background, Um, you know, not just uh, white. um, And there are queer people that exist in all of our intersectionalities. Absolutely. So tell us about the upcoming what is not going to be the pink tie gala, but the rainbow tie gala, the where, the when, the deets. The Rainbow Tie Gala is happening next Saturday, the 18th of November, at the amazing CLB Armory. The reason we go there is the CLB from year one has allowed us to bring in our chefs because we don't just um, do theater. We try and live our mandate in everything we do. So when that is uh, presenting a gala, for instance, we want to bring in and uplift um, female-identifying or marginalized chefs. Um, So we have the amazing Amy Anthony, who runs uh, the Nook and Cannery restaurant, who is a great leader in the queer community. Uh, She is leading our menu this year. We have a host, Janelle Niles, who is a wonderful two-spirit comedian out of Ottawa coming in. And then drag superstar in Newfoundland, Barb Bardot, is going to be our live auctioneer. And our star entertainment for the night is going to end the evening is going to be the Spectrum Queer Choir, which is more than 30 singers coming to share their music and their message with the audience. It's just it's an incredible evening. It sounds great. Where do I get a ticket? What do I have to do? If you go to PersistenceTheater.com, you can see all the details. We are shutting down sales on Monday, of course, because the room is getting very full. Uh, but if you can learn all the information at PersistenceTheater.com. Appreciate the time, Jen. Good luck with it all. Thank you so much, Patty, for having the time to speak to me today. Happy to do Bye-bye. it, Jen. Take care.
All right, bye-bye. It's Jen Dion, Artistical Director at Persistence Theatre. Okay, in the world of the carbon tax on home heating fuel. So I've heard from uh, uh, two different federal members' offices, but uh, big thanks to the folks out of Clifford Small's office and Ken McDonald. They've both written us. We also have this directly from the PUB. So we don't have confirmation of exactly at what time today it will be carved out, but here's, here's what it says. On October the 26, 2023, the Government of Canada announced a temporary pause on the federal fuels charge on deliveries of home heating oil in all provinces and territories where it currently applies to be effective uh, November the 9th 2023 no change to the board's established maximum price for heating fuels on that front but so confirmed today is supposed to be the day but what I would suggest is when you call your oil co- your oil company, whoever provides your home heating oil, just ask them specifically. You know, don't just say, well, the government told me November 9th and just hope and cross your fingers and hope for the best. Ask them specifically whether or not the carbon tax on your he- home heating oil will be applied or not. But we're told today is the day. Both of those offices are trying to confirm a- an absolute time of day when this will come to pass. There's some thought it might be midnight. So if you can hold off, hold off until tomorrow or hold off until we can get confirmation of exactly when that carbon tax will be carved off your home eating oil. All right, let's take a break for the news. We'll make it back. Time for you. Don't go away. Saturday morning, join us for the Irish Newfoundland Show. Send your request to irishnl at vocm.com or submit them online at vocm.com. Welcome back to the show. Let's go to line number one and say good morning to Dr. Cara O'Keefe. She's a community pharmacist and a member of the board at PANEL, which is the Pharmacist Association of Newfoundland and Labrador. Good morning, Dr. O'Keefe. You're on the air. Good morning, Patty. Thanks for having us. Welcome to the show. So, as I mentioned off the top of the program, we've been talking about shortages through all the disciplines inside healthcare. Now we're adding pharmacists. Based on the 2022 survey, what did you find? So based on a 2022 survey of community pharmacy sites across the province and through analysis of our membership data, panel has identified that we have a, uh, approximately 100 pharmacists shortage here in the province. Before we get to recommendations to try to backfill the gap, so what's the reality on the ground? For instance, as I mentioned, if you don't have an emergency room doctor or the other staff, whether it be registered nurses, nurse practitioners, LPNs, we see emergency rooms close, become urgent care centers, or there's rotating hours of operation. What's the reality with the hundred shortage inside the world of pharmacies, pharmacists. Exactly. So this can cause problems in both community and in hospital practices and across the board where we see pharmacists employed. So in, you know, where we see rural communities, a lot of the time pharmacies and pharmacists are the main point of health care for a lot of patients in rural Newfoundland and Labrador. So having shortages of pharmacists in these sites means decreased access to health care and medication resources. In the hospital, if we have shortages of pharmacists, that means we see less pharmacists involved in interdisciplinary care teams. So that means pharmacists are less able to contribute to the overall health of patients in the hospital. It also means that pharmacies, whether they be in the hospital or in the community, are closing earlier. So that means decreased access to care for patients. And those pharmacists that are still working still have to do the same amount of work just in a shorter period of time. So this increases risk for burnout. So let's talk about some of the recommendations. You know, one is simply inside the world of training. So we've expanded the number of seats at the nursing school, expanded the number of seats at the School of Medicine. Currently, how many seats at the pharmacy school, and what's the recommendation regarding the expansion? So right now at the pharmacy school in the, at Mon, we have seats for 40 students to register to become pharmacists. So this is a six-year Doctor of Pharmacy program. Our recommendation is that the government support funding to expand the number of seats at the university. 
it just stands to reason you train more, especially if some of the people who decide they'd like to become a pharmacist and they're born and raised here, the likelihood of them staying is very real. Let's add into mm-hmm. it then the uh, the credentials and accreditation of all healthcare workers, including pharmacists who are from elsewhere. What's the current status of transferring their credentials? Because it, for doctors, for instance, it becomes a long, arduous affair. What's the status for pharmacists? And, and, you know, what we see that very similarly for pharmacists as well. We have many internationally trained pharmacists in the province who are unable to work currently because there are a lot of barriers, whether that be through licensure, through educational resources, and sometimes it's just simply difficult to navigate the process that an individual needs to go through to become licensed. So we're advocating that we make navigation and educational resources more supportive for these internationally trained pharmacists so that they can come to the province and support the people of Newfoundland and Labrador. Is there a big difference, let's say in the first world, the developed world, is there a big difference in the training for pharmacists or is it pretty standard across the board? So a lot of the training that we see across North America and in Europe is very similar. And even in countries where we don't see training quite as similar to what we would have in here in Canada, we do have educational resources to get those pharmacists up to speed. So before they do practice, we have testing in place and training in place to make sure that they can meet the care needs of Canadians. Inside the world of representation, of course, panel would be an umbrella group, an advocacy group, a representative group. But when we talk about public service unions or allied health professionals, who represents pharmacists? So right now, um, pharmacists who work in the public health sector are represented by unions within the hospital. So they are they also represent other allied healthcare professionals. So pharmacists are umbrellaed in with those other essential care workers in the hospital, and their unions advocate for for their you know you know their salaries and their contracts, those sorts of things. So these are all, for the most part, provincial matters. What's the implication of federal government involvement? Because there was some commitment made in the 2022 budget regarding loan forgiveness or what have you. So what exactly was in the budget and where are we in that process? That's right. So over the last couple of years, the Canadian Pharmacists Association has been working with Canadian pharmacy students across the country to work on having pharmacy students included in the Canadian Student Loan Forgiveness Program. So in the 2022 federal budget, it was noted that this was going to expand to other health care providers beyond physicians and nurse nurses and so far we still have not heard back from the federal government as to whether or not they plan on including pharmacists in this uh, student loan forgiveness program and given the current tuition that pharmacy students incur and their increased training of six years in university we advocate that this is a necessary step to make this more accessible to people not only in Newfoundland and Labrador but to students across the country. And I know we wanted to talk about this survey and the results and the 100 of people, the home pharmacist shortage. I'd just like to bounce another couple of you, not trying to put you on the spot. You know, Dr. Debbie Kelly at the Medication Therapy Clinic over at Memorial University School of Pharmacy and the research they're doing about testing and treatment and filling the gaps regarding sexually transmitted infections. What does panel think about the work that's being done there? Because apparently there's a big gap between when you're identified with having one of these uh, STIs, whether it be syphilis or gonorrhea or HIV, between the testing or pardon me, the uh, identification that you have one and getting the treatment, sometimes we're losing pa- patients. So what does panel think about that research and doing these, that, that type of work inside the pharmacy? 
Right. So panel is very supportive of any research that goes into showing the, you know, the leveraging of the community community pharmacist and anything that really highlights, you know, how we can decrease barriers to care and where pharmacists can help patients access care. So we're very supportive of everything at the Medication Therapy Services Clinic because it really highlights the training of pharmacists. It also helps involve students in advocating for their role within the team. So we're very grateful to the university for the, you know, the education they provide our students so that they can better uh, serve, you know, our communities when they graduate and so that we can really demonstrate the important role that pharmacists have in decreasing issues with barriers to cure that patients have across across the province. And there will be some pharmacies that have, like, for instance, methadone clinics, Suboxone or what mm-hmm. have you. What about with the potential to expand pharmacists to have uh, naloxone kits free of charge? Apparently we're one of only two provinces in the country that does not have that in place. You know, they talk about, I heard a pharmacist in Labrador, I believe, or maybe it was a, a researcher say, you know, naloxone kits at 50 bucks per and maybe the inability for so many people to access them. What do people at panel think about expansion of naloxone kits free of charge in the pharmacy because we already do some treatment regarding uh, opioid addiction so is this the uh, the logical next step yes absolutely so panel does support safe access to naloxone and access to naloxone within pharmacies and from pharmacists where we can you know speak to patients and talk to patients about safe access to whether that be you know safe injection supplies naloxone and we will continue to work with government and hopefully find a solution so that we can help patients access this important medication. I want to bounce back to the STI related matter you know there will be some concerns possibly as voiced by say for instance Mayor Hilda Whaler not in Whitburn about privacy so of course right. not every pharmacy has a big expanded area where they can take patients or clients in behind the curtain or into a separate room for testing and or you know administering or distributing naloxone kits so how complicated will that be for the various pharmacies when they try to attend to their clients and patients privacy Right. So in Newfoundland and Labrador, our pharmacy board actually makes sure and ensures that before licensing a pharmacy, every pharmacy must have a private area where they can speak to their clients. So that's actually a common misconception. I know sometimes when we talk about, you know, the expanding role of pharmacists, people have in their minds that these are things that are going to happen, you know, in the aisle of a large pharmacy or at the counter where other patients can overhear conversations. But pharmacists actually use their counseling rooms and private areas quite frequently so every pharmacy has access to these services and whenever you know discretion is required then we do have access to that for patient uh, confidentiality purposes uh, anything else you'd like to talk about this morning while we have you dr o'keefe Right now, I I think we're great. So I think, you know, our main messaging is that we really want to make sure that, you know, we have enough pharmacists here in the province so that we can serve our residents here in Newfoundland and Labrador. I appreciate the time. Thanks for this. Thank you very much. Take care. You too. Bye-bye. It's Dr. Carol O'Keefe, community pharmacist and a member of the board at PANEL. Uh, Let's take a break. Don't go away. Welcome back to the show. Let's go to line number two. Stan, you're on the air. Hi, Patty. Hi, Patty. I phoned you about three weeks ago uh, concerning the service of getting someone to come to your uh, residence to give you a flu shot and a COVID shot if you're not mobile enough to go out. Mm-hmm. And you give me the number, and, and I talked to a person uh, very politely, and she talked to me nice. 
and uh, after a while she said you're in the system so uh, last week I phoned again and I was talking to a person again that was polite and she said slow down you're talking too fast so I said I'm a Newfoundlander I talk fast <laughs> and she said I am too she said, uh, I said, why were you doing now? She said, in Grand Falls. So somebody in Grand Falls is taking the calls. So it don't make a difference for you, too, taking the calls. Long you get into the system. But it's three weeks ago. I, we haven't heard anything. You know, I, I got a family member that can't go out to the clinic or to the drugstore without a risk of falling. And as a system out there, somebody says, if that system is out there, it's just like the other systems, gone to hell. Well, certainly it shouldn't be three weeks. I mean, if I remember correctly, that's so people call the community support program, and it's a toll-free number. And we were told that if you leave your uh, leave a message, which you have to leave your name, address, uh, your telephone number, and your MCP number, we're told that the turnaround time for getting a call back is two days. So yeah, three weeks is not that, two days. I called again last week. <clears throat> it's definitely best for three weeks ago. I, I spoke to you about that. And if that's the system, it's it's not working very good. Yeah, because they implemented this in full in 2021 so that people who are elderly or frail or simply cannot get to a clinic, a community nurse would indeed make their way to your home. I don't know why it's taking three weeks, nor do I know if that's common or you've fallen through the cracks. But, you know, at Newfoundland Health Services, all the regional health authorities are all into one now. I don't know if that's got any impact here. We'll all follow up with the community support program because I give out that number all the time. Yeah. People are always at me like about said, looking for that number. It's here's complex. <clears throat> it's about 240 people at a given time living here. Why do you can't have a day or two a clinic up here and, and, and look after people that needs to uh, get their flu shots or COVID shots? I mean, you could try it. It's only one clinic that I, clinic that I know, and that's down in Mount Pearl Square. And the rest is go to drugstores. I mean, I'm able to do it, but my better half is not able to do it. Yeah. You know, so it's got to be a better system than it's, than it's going out there now. If if it's out there, but I haven't heard nothing. And we're home nearly, uh, I was out yesterday, but nearly every day there's somebody here that could take a call if it comes in. I'll follow up with the community support program, and I think you make a good point, you know, in places where there is congregate living. If, you know, it doesn't mean that everybody is going to want to get one shot or the other, whether it be flu or COVID or RSV, but for folks who do, it'd be great to have it right there where they live in one of the common rooms or what have you, so that if we've got 300 residents in a home, then they all get attended to in the one or two day period, whatever it takes, and the length of time it takes to administer the shots. There's a clubhouse up there, and, and it's another big building, Masonic is up there, and that, you know, there's lots of room to have a clinic. But why do you want to do that? I don't know. It'll help the seniors out, you know? It's a fair point. I'll make the follow-up during the, uh, the upcoming break, Stan. Sure, you can talk uh, whatever you like. The health science in there. Yeah. In there yesterday, it's nothing but a nuisance now to go in there. You're not allowed to go up in front. they got concrete blocks there. only for an ambulance. Now, you're the bumper to bumper up there, stop by the curb. There's no way. I went there yesterday. I had to take my better half out, put her in a mobile chair that I carry with me, and put her inside the door at Golden Park. They're telling me, you're not allowed to be there. I said, don't tell me what I can do, but I can't do. And I had the same thing when I went to go pick her up. 30 seconds, that's all it takes. All you got to be a little bit courtesy and say, look, you're not supposed to be here, but look, be as fast as you can. Or you take her out and I'll put her inside the door for you. No, they're there to give me a lip. That's all they're there to give me a lip because I stopped there. I know I'm not supposed to, but where in the hell am I supposed to stop? Not only me, but other people, but got people that's not mobile. Where do you stop to? If you've got no calls about that in there, I mean, I, people have got to be running the same problems that I'm running into. And if I got to go for blood work anymore, I'll never go to health science. I'll go down Major's path because it's nothing but a nuisance to go in there.
It's not inside, it's outside. I understand. And so the person who told you you can't park there was uh, security? Yeah, you can't stop. You know, I, I wasn't parked. I stopped. 30 seconds to open the, open the back door, take out this mobile chair, put my missus into it, take her inside the door and go park my car. 30 seconds. Instead of then saying, look, take her out and I'll put, the, the, I'll put her inside the door for you. You go park your car. No, no, that was too easy to say that. You give me a lip, then you can't park there. I said, don't tell me what I can do, what I can't do. And uh, because I was upset then, pouring rain, and where am I supposed to park to, to put her in there? We had an appointment, we had to go with appointment time, and then come back to the same thing. I stopped there, took the chair she's in, brought her out, put her in the car, put the chair aboard, and gone again, 30 seconds. Give me a lift, that's all they were doing. Instead of trying to be helpful and, and, and say, I, I, if they're allowed to do it, maybe they're not allowed to touch the, the wheelchair. It's not a wheelchair, it's a mobile chair, uh, put that person inside. But don't give me a lift, just try to be courtesy and, and try to help. Look, okay, there's need a ramblings here, be, be quick as you can or something like that, eh? Yeah, I would imagine it's a liability issue. You know, it's one thing to be courteous versus rude, but I would think that the security guards, they have no coverage for dealing with patients, so they, you know, it's a liability thing for them. But I get your point. You know, as opposed yeah, to simply saying... Right. I, I, I'm quite able to move around in that, but it was only like 30 seconds all it took. I was 40 feet, 30 feet away from the car, away from the entrance. And how long do it take to put a person inside the door and go and park? You know, they're, they're not courtesy enough. You know, they're there standing around doing very little when somebody's illegally parked. But why just stopped? I'm not parked. I stopped. Thirty seconds, I'm gone again. Right. But give me a lip. Right. But anyway, that's another complaint I had. But I'm not full of complaints. But there's one that uh, it's it's terrible, terrible, and you might get calls from other people. There's no way of getting in there and dropping people off. Able-bodied people, yes, you can drop them off. They can walk in, but not people that's not mobile. You can't do it. You got to do what I done yesterday, and they're going to give you a lip. Well, you just have to take it. I appreciate the time, Stan. I'll follow up uh, regarding the community nurse and the timelines for getting out to visit people who have made the request. I'll see what I can figure out. All right. Thanks, Patty. You're welcome. Good day. You too, sir. Bye-bye. Yeah, I mean, that area is congested at the best of times. I don't know if the configuration has changed in preparation for construction. We know that they're expanding the emergency room and what have you. Then, just wait until we have full operations of the new mental health and addictions facility. I mean, between the Janeway and the Health Sciences and Ronald McDonald House and the hostel, it's busy over there, no matter what. Now, just wait until there's full operations in that newly constructed building. When it's staffed up and the patient load and the in or outpatient treatment is ongoing, it's going to be even more furious on that front. Okay, and when we talk about those two vaccines, whether or not people want to uh, get them, I'll leave that up to you. But the recommendations are always coming, and they're always very clear. I heard from a lady this morning uh, via email talking about the RSV vaccine. So they're encouraging people uh, over the age of 60, I think, uh, to get the, the RSV vaccine. The issue is, is that it's not covered by MediV Blue Cross. My understanding is it's not covered by the government or public health. And consequently, the shot that she got a quote from the pharmacist was $268. That's a lot. When it's a recommended public health vaccine, that additional 268 bucks for many people will be prohibitive. They just won't be able to go ahead and get it. So fair enough. Uh, I have been asked as to why the federal legislation regarding SCABs or uh, anti-replacement worker is not inclusive of all workplaces. Well, the fact of the matter is, even inside uh, Seamus O'Regan's portfolio as the Minister of Labor, it only governs. Uh, federally regulated workplaces and industries. It does not cover the entirety of labor. 
that's something I think that is a bit of a misconception out there. That portfolio on, only has any authority over the federally regulated workplaces. And consequently, that legislation will only apply to exactly that. Then there's tons of com- uh, confusion about what exactly is a federally regulated industry or workplace. And I've got, I'd say, 10 emails asking, you know, is where I work? And you would think, or where my husband works, is this one of these services that will be covered with this? The intent, of course, is clear. Labor's been pushing for this kind of stuff for a long time. So whether there's a strike or a lockout with this legislation that at some point will inevitably be in place because it's got the support of the NDP, that's all it's going to take to put it over the top. I guess the opportunity here is to see a decrease in the amount of time that we'll see interruptions in workplaces. Now, there are some hazardous, hazardous workplaces where, like at a steel plant or what have you, that it will not apply because of safety reasons. So the encouragement was clearly to hope to immediately bring in binding arbitration or something to avoid stoppages in the workplace because in some of these areas, the country simply can't suffer a long, prolonged lockout and or strike, including at the ports, which is part of this, including at airports, including at grain elevators, including at banks, including at the Canada Post, all the port services, that's ferries and tunnels and shipping and canals and bridges and pipelines, railways, uh, courier services. So there's a reason why people will think this is appropriate. It is a very big stick to be able to wield now, which really takes away some of the more traditional approach to collective bargaining. I don't know if you think it's a good thing or a bad thing, but the reason why it doesn't apply to everybody is because the federal government does not have jurisdiction to cover everybody. So just in their own federally mandated workplaces. All right, let's check in on the Twitter box. Uh, So that issue regarding the cost of the RSV vaccine, it's one thing to encourage people to get it, quite another for people to be able to come up with the $268 associated with it. We're on Twitter. We're VOCM Open Line. You know what to do. Our email address is openline at VOCM.com. But let's go ahead and take a break. When we come back, plenty of time to speak with you on a topic of your choosing. Don't go away. Your VOCM Mornings with Jerry Lynn Mackey and Ben Murphy, 530 to 9 a.m. weekdays on your VOCM. Welcome back to the program. Interestingly, you know, people, of course, have different opinions on different subjects, and that's exactly what the show's about. And this email, I'll call it interesting. He says, or this person says, it's a good idea for the training of nurses, doctors, and pharmacists to spend less time at university and more hands-on training. And, of course, a big part of training for these disciplines does include a lot of uh, hands-on training, so to speak. The issue regarding training regarding family doctors... This one, I don't really know if it's up or down or good or bad. So we know right across the country there is a shortage of family doctors, and there's millions of Canadians without access to a family doctor. Now, to further complicate that matter, what's coming very uh, very soon is the fact that they're going to add another year of residency to people training to be a family doctor. So going from two years of residency to three years. Family medicine, of course, is a a massive discipline and covers an awful lot of stuff. There's a reason why it takes a long time to become a family doctor, even through the mentoring and residency program. But what will that mean to folks who are choosing a discipline as a medical student? You know, will they think that that additional year of residency might be the reason they don't try to go down the path to become a family doctor? Maybe. But when you compare it to the rest of the so-called modern world, you know, two years is really a very short amount of time to be a resident. If, for instance, Ireland and Australia and many parts of the UK, it's five years. So two to three will feel like a big deal for Canadian medical students. But when compared to other medical schools and very similar types of countries and jurisdictions, it's five years. So what that's going to mean for choices made by med students, don't know. But that's just in reference to the email we just got. Uh, let's go to line number one. Doc, you're on the air. 
Hi, Paddy. How are you this morning? Doing okay. How about you? Pretty good. Bye, I must say. Everything has gone well. Headed into the Christmas season pretty soon. Life goes on, hey? Here we are. <laughs> uh, I thought I'd give you a buzz this morning and, and just talk about the wind energy project out on the west coast, the sure. southwest coast. Yep. And uh, that's the Risley project, of course. And the... Uh, Southwest Coast Alliance and their efforts to ensure that that project follows the proper process of investigation and critique and uh, recommendations that may be forthcoming. I know the minister has announced, what, an extra two months in order for a public consultation. 50 days. Yeah. And, I mean, that's fine. I, you know, I congratulate him on that. But now the big question is, how, how does the public actually get into the uh, the nit and grindy of, of the detail of that report? As you know, and you even try, you tried to read it, I think, yourself, you're talking about a 4,000-page document that is uh, a very complex document filled with uh, all kinds of engineering detail and environmental detail and so on. Basically... You know, you need to be pretty much an expert in many fields to give that the proper analysis. It's a daunting task. Yeah, it is. There's no doubt. Yeah, I, I mean, mean for for Dennis O'Keefe or Patty Daly or um, John Q or Public or Jennifer Q Public, uh, it's it's an impossibility. So our fear with the Southwest Coast Alliance, and I'm helping them out on it. Our fear is that 50 days will pass. Uh, the alliance standing on its own has no funding or no real expert ability to analyze that report. And at the end of 50 days, the government will say, well, we gave you 50 days. What do you got to say about it? And the alliance would have to say what it has said in the very beginning to bring help bring this delay fruition my question would be if it's simply going to be a very similar document with the technical jargon and environmental issues and financial analysis and cumulative effects if it's going to read much like the for the initial 4,000 page document I'm not so sure how further further along we're going to get here I had seen a news release or an email from the Southwest Alliance looking for what in essence would be mimicking the impact of the assessment agency of Canada intervener status being triggered funding for for outside independent experts, those types of things. If it didn't happen in the first 50 days, I don't foresee it happening in the next 50 days or whatever number of days are left, but it's not a bad idea. I mean, getting it right, and the government, I guess to their credit, maybe that's overstating it, to go back to ask further questions because it very much feels like when you talk about relationship between BC, uh, Premier EB, and uh, Premier Fury, the MOU with Germany, all these types of things, it just feels like it's inevitable. It's coming, regardless if it's 50 days, 100 days, or 150 days, because the government talks very bullish on this particular industry and to get in on the so-called ground floor. So I don't know what the next document going to look like. I don't know if that's going to glean any more information for me and you in the Southwest Alliance. It might satisfy the questions being asked by the consultants that have been brought in. And of course, in the province has paid about $462,000 on three different companies to do, whether it be fairness or technical, technical and financial analysis. So will it satisfy them? I guess we'll find out. Well, 
I mean, what we done, what we've done in order, we being the Southwest Coast Alliance, what we've done in order to make this process fair and to give the public an independent view of the detail contained in that study, we've written the minister this morning, Minister Parsons, and we've copied the premier, and we've copied uh, Minister Davis and others, uh, asking that they uh, they fund. An independent study, and we've recommended that Liberty Consulting uh, be the, the the group well qualified to do that study, uh, and an examination of the EIS and the environmental impact study. And they may come back and say, "Well, yeah, this is all roses," you know. And they may come back and say, "Well, uh, here are some of the things that we have issues with, and that government needs to consider." And at least it's worth the government's money to make sure that this is done right and that this is done correctly. And if it's going to be done, and and that is all the Southwest Coast Alliance wants to see happen. So we've written the minister. Uh, we have a press release uh, that has gone out this morning and, and uh, our request to the minister. We have sent a letter to Tony Wakem, the leader of the opposition and the MHA for that particular district, Stephenville port de uh, asking that he come on side and lobby the minister uh, in this process and that he, um, he actually do what he can uh, in his capacity as MHA to bring it to the House of Assembly probably next week because they adjourn after next week. So uh, we're, we're asking him to uh, bring it up when the House meets next week, probably during question period, and again to further coax the government along the road of doing the right thing and the fair thing. And, you know, Patty, at the end of the day, all the, these studies that are legitimately done, uh, and, and dare I say, uh, if, if they had been done in the case of Mossrat Falls, we might not be where we are today with that one. And we certainly can't afford another one. I know Minister Parsons has said there's no provincial money in it. And, uh, and I'd have to say yes. And you've made the point on open line that a lot of these companies, they get five or six or three or four or however many years down the road, and then all of a sudden <clears throat> the issue becomes, well, we're running into trouble, uh, and they go hand in fist to government looking for a subsidy. That may or may not happen, but we do know in the meantime that there is federal funding, our tax dollars, going into that project. So um, we need to know that... Every, all the T's are crossed and the I's are dotted yeah. before this is given to go ahead. Yeah, That's I mean, all we're asking. You mentioned Muskrat. The unfortunate issue there is not that the issues weren't understood, is that they weren't communicated. I mean, even SNC-Lavalin, which is a disgraced company, they had a risk report on the desks of the leadership at Nalcor at the time that we never, ever saw. We didn't even know who read it or if they ever read it. And it pointed yeah. out some very clear risks. And, I mean, I, I think the conversation is entirely different, to be honest, but I get how people are drawing that analogy. Quickly, before we run out of time, Doc, why Liberty Consulting? Because 
of for people who don't know or what have you, Liberty was doing quarterly reports for the Public Utilities Board uh, on a variety of fronts regarding Nelcor operations, Muskrat Falls and otherwise. I guess there is no Nelcor anymore. Newfoundland, Labrador Hydro and Muskrat Falls. Yeah. They were doing important work. They highlighted some pretty key pieces of information that further got dealt with or public conversation about it. But why Liberty? Is it because they're a known entity in this province? Do they actually have any horsepower or knowledge of this industry? Because I don't know really who does. You can bring in uh, the power group and you can bring in a, a fairness advisor. But why Liberty? Well, we just felt that right now, as far as we know, they are the best out there to, based upon what they've done here in the province. Uh, they are the best to do that kind of analytical study. And if they don't have the uh, all of the expertise uh, to to examine certain aspects of it, then they certainly would know where to get that expertise also. We just feel that Liberty is our best bet to make sure that that the legitimate study and report is done on the project as a balance to the environmental impact study. It's all an issue of uh, fairness. I mean, don't tell the public we're going to give you 50 days without giving the public the ability to make proper use of that 50 days. Otherwise, you're saying to the public, we're giving you 50 days, you're on your own, and, you know, if you're going to beat your head against a concrete wall, then beat your head against a concrete wall, and at the end of the 50 days, we're proceeding. Well, you got to give them a... It's not legitimate. you got to give them a timeline, though, because it can't be out of the blue that the government just wakes up one morning and says, OK, here's the decision. You got We have to know when it's coming. The problem oh, yeah. is... I, I, agree. I agree. I mean, but I... just very I'm quickly. Not problem with the timeline our only problem is uh, uh, our ability to function as we should function within that timeline. I get it, but if that timeline went from 50 days to 500 days and nothing changes with process and intervener status and funding and consulting groups, sure, it doesn't matter how many days because if it comes out like the first 50 days, right. again, it doesn't matter if you have 10 times that because I won't be able to understand it any further than I did in the first 50. That's right, and and that's why those who are expert in that field can adequately and and uh, efficiently within that fifty day framework do the work that needs to be done in order to to give a balanced view of the impact study. Need I okay. say that was done by John Risley for John Risley? I appreciate and the time. Paid for by John Risley. Well, fair enough. That's a common refrain, too. But let me, you know, the same could be said if you or the Southwest Alliance is given uh, some money to fund an expert, it would be the exact same comment. Well, you get what you pay for, you know, paying the piper and all that stuff. These companies have reputations that they have to lean on after this body of work. So I get that's the yeah. the sentiment, but I think sometimes that gets exaggerated. Because what about if government says, well, sure, the guys that the Southwest Alliance uh, hired, they were paid to give this in particular opinion. So what do you expect? Uh, so that, that, that just becomes a to and fro or thrust well, the parry yeah, with I mean and, and that's a point well taken and but again all we're saying is all the Southwest Coast Alliance is saying is that w- we need w- we need to get expert advice I get it detail involved in that yep. study before the project goes ahead appreciate the and time we're asking doc the government to to uh, put in that balance and I appreciate the time thank you Thanks, Heidi. You take care. You too, Dennis. All the best. Yeah. Bye. Bye-bye. All right. Uh, let's go ahead and take a break. Don't go away. Welcome back to the show. Let's go. Line number two. Colin, you're on the air. Good morning, Mr. Daly. How are you this morning? Not too bad. Thanks. How are you doing? Pretty good. Thanks. 
want to make some comments about the uh, Republican leadership debate last night. <laughs> yeah. It's uh, rather humorous. It wasn't so serious. You have uh, these people want to be uh, the president of the United States. And uh, all of them collectively have the in- intellect and cognitive perspective of a three-legged, one-eyed, neurosyphilitic, pre-eclantic Bolivian alpaca. Well, I, I can't make any comment on the actual proceedings last night because I didn't watch any of it. But I can imagine. Yeah. I read some of the highlights and saw a few clips this morning, and apparently one of them would like to build a border wall between the states and Canada, which was a fascinating concept. But anyway, yeah, I, I don't know what went on last night. Yeah, you know, that, that would be uh, that would go over really well, like the border wall between Mexico and the United States that uh, former President Don Corleone uh, started to build, you know. Uh, one of the uh, enlightening moments of the debate was on foreign policy, I thought, uh, talking about Iran. And apparently the uh, Republican leadership uh, candidates, um, their mantra now is going to be uh, Iraq 3.0. Let's do a Persian incursion. Let's attack Iran. And we worry about the consequences later. You know, and I guess uh, if you do that, you you know you bomb uh, Tehran and all the big cities in that country. You're not going to get the outcome that you got with Iraq and Afghanistan, right? So that's not going to happen. You're not going to get Hezbollah and Hamas and all these other terrorist groups and the Taliban and Al Qaeda and ISIS, and they're not just going to come out of the woodwork and start even more trouble in the Middle East than is already going on there now. That's not going to happen, right? Highly unlikely. I, I just, uh, the United States spent 20 years in Iraq and he spent about $5 trillion and accomplished what? Nothing. There you go. So what would, what would happen if they uh, started a conflict with Iran and uh, put boots on the ground in Iran? You're going to get the same thing. And this is what passes for substantive, um, thoughtful public policy debate in the United States on the right that you had the five leadership candidates uh, who are not going to win, by the way, but, you know, just uh, they're going to be vying for the vice president uh, slot or a cabinet position or something like that or an ambassadorship. But if this is the state of the Republican Party. So, right? I mean, I don't even know why I'm asking this, but I know that uh, the former president was not there. So was Vivek and DeSantis and Nikki Haley and who are the other two? Scott uh, or Christy, Christy and Scott. Christy and Scott, yeah. Yeah. Okay. You know, and uh you know, Governor De Minimis, he's just a write off. He just uh, he's the head of he's the uh the governor of Florida and he should stay the governor of Florida. Because he wants to import his ideas of Florida uh, on a national scale if he became president. Uh, and, you know, we don't even want to get into an abortion fiasco down there and Roe v. Wade and all that sort of stuff. 
Well, it, it's kind of interesting. I, I pay limited attention, even though I should pay more to American politics. I just find it a bit too frustrating. Is like the Republicans are ahead in the polls, regardless of who represents the party. And I guess they just really poll Trump Biden at this point. They're doing very well on the national stage, but not so much in state houses and, and the like. You know, it's pretty good night, or not, not a very good night for the Republicans in some of these state uh, contests, similar to what's happening in Canada. You know, on the federal front, the conservatives are polling well ahead of the liberals, but at the exact same time, some of the conservative premiers are falling. Olivia Chow was the mayor of the largest city in the country. The NDP just won in Manitoba. So it's just sort of strange, isn't it, how provincially and, and statewide, there is one type of victor or one trend, and on the national stage, it's the exact opposite. I find it quite, quite interesting. Yeah, it is. It's uh, like Kentucky, for example, which is a uh, coal country and is a solid, you know, a solid red state, and they have a, a Democratic governor. Yeah. Yeah, you know, and it's. Um, I, I think abortion is going to be the wedge issue down there, and uh, and the state ballots. No question. You know, if you're a woman in uh, southern Texas, and you can't get an abortion there, and you need one, uh, an obstetrician says you, you know you got to have it for whatever medical reason, um, and you can't get it in that state. Where are you going to go? Are you either going to go west to California, or are you going to go north all the way up to uh, Illinois? I think the next closest uh, would be New Mexico. It might be. Yeah, I know. I know. I know you can in California and yeah. Illinois. And, and if you travel from southern Texas to uh, to up to the Panhandle, go north, you're almost halfway halfway to Illinois. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I've, I've even heard some reference to you know abortion ban at the time of uh, at the time of fertilization. How does that work? I mean, are we going to be doing it in the governor's bedroom, or do I have a stopwatch? Or some of it's just so outrageous that it's hard to even know that it actually came out of a potential leader and/or governor's mouth. Like at time of fertilization, who's got yeah, that yeah. math? Yeah, nobody. It's uh, the vast majority of women don't even know they're pregnant at six weeks. Sure. Anyway, yeah. it's all a bit much, a bit mind-boggling. I've got my hands full with domestic matters. <laughs> Yeah, it's, uh, it, you know, the, the Canadian uh, scene, we have enough going on here, too. But uh, we had to look at the United States because whatever they do, we invariably will end up getting dragged into something, especially if it's on a, a foreign policy issue like the Middle East. Uh, you know, and, and Trump, you know, his attitude for all this is that the problem in Ukraine, I can solve that within 24 hours. The mm-hmm. Middle East, yeah, I can solve that, too. You know? like. Mm-hmm. You spent four years in the big chair, and what did you accomplish? Goose egg. You got the Abraham Accords. Okay, yeah, that's great. What else did you accomplish? Nothing. Nothing on foreign policy. He he ripped up the JCPOA, pulled the United States out of the uh, Iran nuclear accord. And at the same time he did that, he's trying to negotiate an agreement with North Korea, going over to the Korean Peninsula. You don't think the North Koreans are watching television, watching him pull out of an international agreement? And yet he wants to sign a, an agreement with North Korea. Well, I mean, I know the point you're making, but there's only a couple of people in North Korea have access to a television. Have you ever seen a picture of North Korea at night from space? Yeah, dark. It's dark. It's black. Yeah. It's like Trump's brain. Yeah, I, I mean, I don't care to go down that path. But, you know, just t- talking about those types of authoritarian governments, you know, that's why when people say dictatorship and stuff in Canada, let's think this is a step further to where that's actually the reality. A shot of North Korea from space at night is black. There's only a couple of places that have electricity. It's truly amazing stuff. Uh, Colin, I appreciate the time. Thanks for calling this morning. 
Cheers. Take care. Bye-bye. Bye now. Yeah, I mean, I do keep a, an ear to what's going on in the States because, of course, it really does have an impact on a variety of fronts in Canada, economically speaking, you know, our largest trading partner, the largest unmilitarized border uh, in the world, and some of the influence of uh, political commentary and rhetoric and hyperbole, it does make its way into Canadian politics, and I think that's for the worst, to be honest with you. But uh, hopefully we won't arrive at a place that the Americans find themselves in the world of politics. There's going to be headbutts and stalemates and division and barbs and snickers and mockery and all the rest of it. But we are not quite where the Americans find themselves, and let's hope we never are. But some of those culture war things, it's amazing that, you know, when you have the polls uh, leading up to elections, it's usually about the economy, right? The, the late, great Tim Russert, it's the economy, stupid. So, but now some of the culture war issues are kind of taking over. Yes, people will be concerned with taxation and jobs and the economy and healthcare and criminal justice and climate change and the environment, of course. But what's really going to be the sticky issues that are going to make for some very toxic campaign rhetoric is going to be culture war stuff. And, you know, when you stand back and think about it, regardless of what you think about some of those issues inside that headline of culture war, most of them really don't have anything to do with our day-to-day lives, our day-to-day happiness or health or prosperity, and very little to do with the economy and taxes and jobs and healthcare and education and climate change. But it gets people going. And I suppose it's for that exact reason why it's being used as a tool. Because you can have differences with economic policy and use quotes about the prime minister doesn't care about fiscal, or pardon me, monetary policies, focus on fiscal policy. You know, we can have those legitimate or more legitimate debates, but that culture stuff, that is going to be the feature, well, I guess alongside carbon tax. So that's where we're going. We're going to have a culture war carbon tax uh, uh, campaign coming up, and it's not going to be great. But we're going to cover it. All right, we're on Twitter. We're VOCM Open Line. You know what to do. Our email address is openline at VOCM.com. When we come back, let's have another great conversation with you on a topic that you decide to discuss. Don't go away. Every Saturday is perfect for a night at the cabin. The Cabin Party with Brian O'Connell. Saturday night starting at 7 p.m. on VOCM. Welcome back to the show. Let's go. Line number three. Say good morning to the independent member from Mount Pearl Southlands. That's Paul Lane. Paul, you're on the air. Good morning, Patty. How are you this morning? Not too bad. How about you? I'm not doing too bad at all. Um, Patty, uh, I just wanted to chime in once again. Um, I was listening to uh, Dennis O'Keefe and uh, yourself having a conversation about the uh, uh, project on the southwest coast of the province, the GH2 project. Uh, and I guess what um, the committee that uh, Dennis is involved with, what, what they're asking for. And, you know, I, I just want to say once again, um, you know, right off the bat, I totally appreciate uh, the need uh, for government to find new sources of revenue to diversify the economy, to create employment, uh, tax spin-off uh, for municipalities, all that good stuff. And I'm sure that there are many, many people out uh, you know, in the Stephenville area and so on uh, that are thrilled uh, about, and on the West Coast in general, are thrilled about uh, this particular project and the economic development opportunities it will bring, the jobs, the, the taxes to municipality, all good stuff. I, I understand uh, totally, and, 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 I, and I understand the need for it, absolutely. 
But I, I think what what Dennis was saying, um, not to put words in his mouth, but from my take on it, and I, I kind of share his view, is that if we're going to do this, uh, even though it may not be taxpayers' money in the same respect as Muskrat Falls was, at the end of the day, there's still going to be impacts, uh, positive uh, and or negative, that will come from these huge projects. And I think it's a matter of just having assurances that if we're going to go down this road, that is going to be done right. I mean, that, that, that for me, that's, that's all it's about. And I know Minister Parsons has said uh, on your show, he said in the House Assembly, and I have a lot of respect for Minister Parsons, uh, I can tell you that, uh, that, um, that, you know, Newfoundland and Labrador are doing much more than the province of Nova Scotia in terms of trying to provide information and going to, and having a, an extensive process. I do appreciate that. But to Dennis's point, that whether we give it another 50 days or 500 days or two years, uh, if you don't have somebody uh, to independently examine the information that's coming out, like what's in that 4,000-plus page report, uh, and, t- and truly understand it, and to be able to give uh, an unbiased view, uh, then, then it doesn't matter how much time you have. It's, it's not gonna, we're not going to be any better off, because the average person is generally not going to be able to decipher what's, what's in there and understand the true impact. So I don't think it's a bad idea. Um, you know, whether there's funding provided or the government does it itself or whatever to have, or, or maybe they hand it off, expand the mandate of someone like a, a Dennis Brown or the PUB or somebody uh, independent, and just to have that mandate to be able to get an independent uh, study or independent review of the information coming forward, just so that the public, and put it to bed once and for all, and that the public totally understands the full picture, what all the impacts are, the pros and the cons, so that, you know, as we move forward with this, because it seems like it's going to happen, it seems pretty inevitable, but uh, as we move forward, at least we'll have some assurances that it's going to be done right and that 10 years from now we won't be saying, oh, my God, we should have looked into this or we should have looked into that or it doesn't turn out to be the great thing that we thought it was going to be. But how it's going to turn out... You know, for starters, I think that that is a massive question, but that's a business model question, and I don't think that's necessarily what's being asked. I guess in some form it is, because if this doesn't have the 25, 30-year lifespan regarding the access to market and the market's thirst for the product and the price point that green hydrogen comes at, there's a lot of unknowns there. So I guess that's part and parcel why people are asking about water use and monitoring and the cumulative effect on the environment and X, Y, and Z up and down the line. I totally get it, but this bit about how long and how successful it's going to be look unfortunately there are examples already in Europe well for instance you know Germany the MOU has been signed with Germany Germany now reports that they have a full stock of natural gas and no longer have that worry that they had this time last year so if indeed that they're going to be able to proceed for instance in using natural gas more and more they, have, they say themselves they have a full stockpile for this coming winter how much of the thirst for this green hydrogen will continue in the future? It does come yep. with a significant price point. It does come with an energy loss through transportation. And a couple of projects that have been based on green hydrogen in Europe have been shelved. So 
I don't know if they're going to be successful or not, and whether or not there's going to be a, a market for all of the green hydrogen projects that are going to come to pass, plus those that are going to be built very likely in much more closer proximity to the markets in Asia, in Europe. How does that further complicate the business? I don't know, but those are certainly big questions. And as Doc said, if it doesn't work out the way they hope it works out, inevitably, well, this happens, and I, I don't have a crystal ball, but when industry runs into trouble, they come to government. Right? So well, we it's fine to say. Industry, didn't we? Well, pardon? We just saw that recently with the oil industry and the, uh, the, uh, the millions of dollars that were poured into uh, our local projects to keep them afloat uh, during the pandemic. So, yeah. Well, I mean, regarding Terra Nova, it's very real. It's about $500 million. So Absolutely. it's about $300 million in royalty relief, a couple of hundred million cash on the barrel head. ExxonMobil's out there exploring now with a $50 million break. So it's not like that hasn't happened. And that's a thriving, booming, extraordinarily profitable business. Yep. Yep. And, uh, yeah, uh, 100% penny. And, uh, and I mean, I, I guess that's kind of the concern. Look, I understand there's private uh, money going into this and it's near risk and so on. Uh, it is a very good point that we could be asked uh, later on to uh, get involved, and that's always a concern. But there's also concerns around what potential impact all these projects might have on our grid in terms of uh, upgrades required and so on, what that might cost us. Uh, we don't understand, uh, I, I don't understand, I don't know about you, uh, a clear picture of exactly how much money are we getting out of this. Like I, I know that the province has put in uh, a, a process of, of, of how we're going to receive you know, certain royalties and taxation and so on, but exactly w- when you consider the, sc- the size and the scope of what's being done and the impact it will have, um, you know, for, forever, uh, I, I guess, uh, on the environment and everything else. Uh, in exchange for that, what does the return actually look like? Are we talking hundreds of millions of dollars? Are we talking billions of dollars? Are we just talking about a couple of million dollars. Well, I can tell uh, you I what the province. Know. I can tell you what the province has said about that. Yeah, okay. Okay. So they say during construction, operations, and decommissioning, which is also important, that's not on my dime, that's on their dime, they say that in those three phases of all four projects that have been pushed to the next stage, that which does not include pattern energy out of the port of Argentia, they say lifespan between 35 and 40 years, anticipated economic impact, which is, of course, a GDP number, of over $200 billion, revenue to the province, almost $12 billion. Those are the numbers government are using, not to say that they're accurate or fair or have any veracity but that's exactly what the government has said yeah yeah and 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 i do question some of those numbers and look there's no doubt uh, it was like muskrat falls as well uh you know and, and again i know it's a totally different thing but at the time on muskrat falls uh let's face it the business community were all in the unions were all in and so on because during the construction phase and so on it was a big boom People were making a pot, business were making a pile of money, employees, unionized employees were making a pile of money. It was all great. But that was very short lived. And a lot of this money is going to be short lived. So, uh, you know, I, I know it'll be welcome at the time. It'll be positive, no doubt about it. But these are, you know, shorter term. Now, in terms of the longer term, what will be the lasting economic impact? I guess that's kind of anyone's guess. Um, uh, you know, uh, I know. Uh, anything we can do to create more employment uh, and generate uh, revenue for provincial coffers to pay for programs, generate revenue for municipal coffers and so on, that's all uh, a positive thing. I'm not, like I said, I'm not knocking any of that. I'm not against the project in in in, in general. Uh, I think that, you know, the world 
obviously we have an issue with climate change and we have to diversify, um, you know, globally and get away from fossil fuels. So uh, I'm not against any of those things at all. But, you know, again, I just think we need a clear understanding uh, and, you know, in an open and transparent manner, in an unbiased point of view, a clear understanding of exactly what this and these other projects are going to mean to our province from a health perspective, from an environmental perspective, from a potential Understood. impact work grid, and, 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 and what the benefits will be to counteract that. Because any project we do, and you've said this before, you know, whether it's, whether it's uh, uh, mining or aquaculture or whatever we do, there's always going to be an environmental impact uh, with industry. It's just the nature of the beast. And you have to balance that with what are the what are, what are the returns uh, to the province and okay. the need for employment and so on. So hopefully right. it all works out. But I, I, you know, again, having that independent uh, yes, review Paul. by somebody Understood. who knows what doing, I think is a good thing. Appreciate the time. Thanks, Paul. Thank you, Patty. Have a great day. You too. Bye bye. All right, let's take a break. When we come back, Brenda Kitchen, she's with the Southwest uh, South Coast. Southwest Coast Alliance Group, and Dan Meads, he's a provincial coordinator with the Transition House of Newfoundland and Labrador, to talk about the newly announced poverty reduction plan coming up right after this. Took away. Yeah, welcome back to the show. Let's go to line number two. Take it more to the provincial coordinator with the Transition House Association of Newfoundland and Labrador. That's Dan Meads. Good morning, Dan. You're on the air. Patty, nice to speak to you. Great to have you on the show. Thanks for making time. So there was a lot to it yesterday, and to be honest, like I heard from Sheldon Pollard at Choices for Youth, I was a little surprised with just how much was involved in this announcement yesterday. I know that you focus in on one statement coming from the Premier about universal basic income. It's not exactly what that was yesterday, but you think it might be the first step. Just pick up where I left off with the Premier's comments on that particular program. Yeah, it's not that I think it's the first step. It's that the Premier said it was the first step. This marks a a huge change for this government and certainly for the Premier himself. I've never heard him speak publicly about basic income before. In fact, he hasn't said much about poverty. Social determinants of health are a thing he talks about a lot, as well as some prosperity initiatives. But, you know, the word poverty is not something that we hear this Premier talk about a lot. So just there being a poverty reduction strategy released yesterday. That was meaningful in and of itself. But then in the question and answer afterward, when he said that one of the reasons they're streamlining the income support program, going down from 30-some programs down to six, and introducing a basic income pilot for people between 60 and 64 who are living in deep poverty, he said that that's because he believes a universal basic income is the right way forward for Newfoundland and Labrador, and he believes this is the first step in that direction. Now, in order for him to say this is the first step, presumably he means there's a second step. I look forward to hearing from the Premier what that is and when he'll be taking that next step. But it was without question an unequivocal declaration from the Premier of the province saying that universal basic income is the right choice for Newfoundland Labrador and that he's working towards it. It's a huge statement, certainly the biggest statement on this topic we've heard from any Premier in Canada ever. I, I would imagine next steps include when the committee that was struck, and it was consensus amongst all 40 members of the House of Assembly to strike this committee. They've met, but they are nowhere near bringing forward recommendations. So I assume no next step until at least that part of the process is uh, fulfilled. 
Well, I wouldn't assume that. I think that's a reasonable thing to assume, except that he just announced a basic income pilot for 60 to 64-year-olds living in deep poverty, and we've had a basic income pilot for youth leaving care that has been extended. And so work is happening on this. Now, if he was really serious about it, what would be the next step? Well, the next step would have been that instead of increasing income support in ways that he just did, and we haven't seen the details of it yet, Patty, so it's it's difficult for me to say what is and isn't good about the income support rate increases Mm -hmm. because we haven't seen the math, we haven't seen the details. You know, the idea that a poverty reduction plan was released yesterday is important, except I, like we don't have the plan. There's no document that I can share with you that gives these income support um, figures for you. But if you were serious, the next step is to increase those income support rates to the poverty line. Because fundamentally, what we have here in Newfoundland Labrador, our income support program is an awful lot like a basic income. It just doesn't pay people enough. And so what I mean by that is that we don't have a ton of means testing here. You don't need to prove that you're looking for a job. There's, there's nothing you need to do to qualify for income support other than not have enough money to live, right? And so our income support program is really a universal income program. It's just so deeply inefficient that before yesterday's announcement, most people on income support made something like 42% of the poverty line. And so you're living in such deep poverty if you're on income support, to call that a basic income would be an insult to the idea and to all of us. If the premier was serious about a basic income, and I hope he is, listen, I take the man at his word. I'm, I'm not suggesting that he's not serious about it. The next step would be continuing to raise those income support rates to get to the poverty line. Now, if I were being cynical, and I would never dare to to suggest such a thing, (laughs) I would say that if you were serious about it, the first thing you would have done would have been to index those income support rates to inflation. I think people have an exaggerated notion of just how many people in the province are on income support. It's about 22,000. And you know, some 9,000 children who are living in a low-income household, which is some of the reasons why the child... Oh, Dan, Dan's call dropped out. Can we get uh, Dan back, David, here, please? So I'll just set the stage for what we hope will be the continuation of the conversation with Dan. So I wonder, like when people say universal basic income, there are people, like many about public policies, you're all in or you're all out. When we have just so, when we have just so many different programs and boutiques, tax cuts, we just need to do some math. Exactly how much you're spending through all of these different programs and services and just how much universal basic income would cost in comparison. I would imagine people would be surprised with the math because currently we just do it in our heads or on a cocktail napkin versus a real fundamental comprehensive analysis of all of these programs and what they cost. Uh, oh, I, I think Dan is back here on line number two. Dan Meads, you're back on the air. Yeah, I'm back with you, Patty. Thank you for that. I heard most of what you just said. Some of that basic income costing work has been done for us, and you can check it out on basicincomeandall.com. You can see the website there. And some of that basic income work, the costing has been done. There are a bunch of ways to roll out the program. Some of them are really, really expensive, and some of them aren't. You made a great point there about just how many people are on income support. But the thing I want to really focus on as we think about this is that Newfoundland Labrador today has the highest child poverty rate in Canada. We're creeping up on 10%. 10% of kids in Newfoundland and Labrador are living in poverty. Now, some of the things rolled out yesterday are really interesting and are going to help that problem. One of them is school lunches in every school across Newfoundland and Labrador. This is a good public policy. We should have lunches in every school. Great. It's a good announcement. It is not a poverty reduction strategy, though. Right? What we don't have there are those families that are sending their kids hungry. There's nothing changing for those families. The children get lunch, and that's great. Not so helpful in July and August, but it is an important piece of public policy. What I'm suggesting, though, is that if the premier is serious about this, about basic income, which is, you know, in my opinion, is the biggest thing he said yesterday by far, 
right? Income support rates going up are huge. All these things are important. But his commitment to basic income yesterday, if he's serious about it, this should be the key platform, key key pillar in the liberal platform in the next election to lift Newfoundlanders and Labradors out of Labradorians out of poverty through a universal basic income, which is what the premier suggested yesterday. I'm excited to hear what comes next. What's the specific increase in income support? Yeah, so we didn't get a ton of the details. Yeah. So for some people, it's going to be as little as 15%, which is still great. For some people, it's going to be as much as 100%. Now, we got a little bit of detail there yesterday. One of the details we got is that in some cases, people are being penalized by living together. So yeah. you can have two individuals. Both of them are in, on income support. They're living separately. They get two separate income support checks. Those two individuals move in together. Government is assuming that they're in a romantic relationship and are, are an economic unit then. And there's a big clawback in some of that income support payment as a result. They're changing that. So they're saying that, hey, if you're living together, it doesn't necessarily mean that you're an economic unit. And even if it does mean that you're an economic unit, you know, there's still some opportunities for us to make sure that you're living closer to, right? Nobody's going above the poverty line by these announcements yesterday. You're going to be closer to the poverty line just be, even though you live together. An interesting thing that's been happening in Newfoundland and Labrador in this regard is that if you're of the same sex, they never clawed back any of your payments. So two men live together, they assume you're roommates. A man and a woman live together, they assume you're a couple. It's always been an interesting dichotomy there. I also suspect, and I don't don't know this to be true because we haven't seen the details. I suspect that there's going to be some differential payments based on where you're living in Newfoundland and Labrador. And so if you're living on the coast of Labrador, we know cost of living is more expensive than if you're living here in town. And I suspect some income support changes are going to recognize that. But again, I don't know that to be true. We're waiting to see the actual plan be released with some of these details. One of the things that is really quite I was startled when I saw the number, and it is a direct poverty reduction measure, is increasing the child benefit for children under the age of 18, tripled. I mean, a 300% increase is significant. For a family who have two children, it goes from $921 to $3,684. Extremely helpful. Let's just talk universal basic income again for a second here. So you say some of the costing has been done. First question I would have is, how many people were captured and what was the cutoff, you know, net family adjusted income or net individual uh, income adjustment? Because right now, even to assess or access some of these increases in these programs, the family cutoff is about $25,736. So with the costing that you or whoever did, where was that cutoff to see how many people would be inside the uh, eligibility for universal basic income? Yeah, great question. So I'm happy to get super into the weeds on it with you because I love this stuff, but I also want people to find it online so they can do it themselves, sure. right? So so you can find basic income and you'll you Google that and you'll find it. We had, you know, the country's best economist on these matters do the costing for us, and he gave us a whole gamut of ways to do it. We used the poverty line. And so the poverty line based on the Newfoundland and Labrador market basket measure was about $28,000 a year, $27,800, as opposed to the $25,000 a year. That was before this last last set of inflationary increases. We had the costing done in late 2021. And so there are some differences, certainly in the last two years, they're going to change some of those things. What I want people to know, though, about basic income is that it is expensive upfront. No one is pretending this is a cheap piece of public policy. It can be expensive upfront, but it can save you money down the road in lots and lots of ways. And I don't mean the ways in which we say, well, you know, we're going to get rid of all other government programs or we're going to stop funding shelters and we're going to do all these, we're not going to need food banks because suddenly we've got a basic income. That's not what I mean. What I mean is that the changes of the way that people interact with the healthcare system, 
the education system and the justice system, when they have a basic income, save you more than the cost of those programs up front. So just those three areas, right? So when we talk about how much poverty costs a society, it's those three areas, the healthcare system, the education system, and the justice system. That's where you're going to save your money, not in the social service sector, not, not in anywhere else. It's, we're not talking about stopping funding those important programs, mental health services, those types of things. It's those three areas, education, health, and the justice system. That's where you save your money. Fair enough. And I mean, this is not to imply that any additional money, because whether I talk to Josh, me or yourself or advocates in this uh, realm, you know, the, the thought is that money solves it. Even though the money might be the root of all evil, money will solve poverty-related matters. It just stands to reason. It's common sense. One has a direct relationship with the other. Also, when we've seen jurisdictions that have gone down this path, including back in the 70s in Manitoba with the Dauphin dollars, what we did not see included was not simply just uh, financial uh, implications, but we need to have incentives like the Employment Stabilization Program to be part of it, to have people move off from whether it be social assistance now or universal basic income then, because that's got to be part of it. Also, and this is not to imply that people will do anything but try to pay their bills and feed their children and what have you, is it also has to come with the associated suite of harm policies because if it doesn't we might be setting ourselves up so and that's not trying to be derogatory because harm reduction yeah. is for everybody regardless if you make a quarter million dollars a year or twenty five thousand dollars a year so what do you make of that the incentives yeah. to work and the harm reduction that has to be a wraparound as part of it yeah this is thank you so much for the thoughtful question patty i love having this conversation with you so thanks for the way you're framing this it's really thoughtful the premier addressed some of these things directly yesterday which is part of what we got kind of excited by his comments we sometimes see politicians say things like yeah basic income's a pretty good idea maybe it's okay the premier yesterday said unequivocally the data and the research shows us in quote peer-reviewed journals that a basic income does not disincentivize people to work. He's talking about all these studies, including the dolphin dollars that you talked about, that show if you give people enough money to live, not a ton extra. We're not talking about paying people sixty-five dollars and $70,000 a year to stay at home. That, listen, there's a case to be made right, for all of these things. But what we are talking about is giving people enough money to afford all of their basic needs and then they get the opportunity to educate themselves, to engage better in the, in the in the public service system and find employment that works for them. And that's what we see time and time again when these studies are done. And here's how I describe it to you. We have this notion that people that are on income support or living in poverty are somehow different than the rest of us are and that they're going to make different choices than we are. I Listen, I'm a person I've been very fortunate. I've had a job for a very, very, very long time. And if somebody came to me tomorrow and said, Dan, hey, do you want to work a little bit harder or make a little bit more money? I'd say, gosh, you know, I got an eight-year-old toddler. Of course I'd work a little bit harder or make a little bit more money. We all would. Everybody does. Everybody, when given the opportunity to better themselves and their families, take that opportunity. So people living in poverty and on income support, even if that income support was what I would call a basic income and paid them the poverty line or slightly above it, those individuals would still make the choices to better themselves and their families. Now, there is a conversation to be had about what we do about the significant mental illness and addictions problem in this province and in every province across Canada. There are a segment of the population that are not going to be suitable for work. Those individuals have got illness that need to be treated in a very significant way before they're going to engage in the workforce in the same way that you and I do. That's okay. It's okay. We need to accept the fact that those individuals need help in a different way than just money before they're going to get to work. Now, does that mean they don't deserve the money while they're doing that work? Of course, that's not what it means. Those individuals that are struggling with addictions, and these are our neighbors, right? They're our neighbors and friends. We see them every day. All you got to do is take a walk up Water Street and you see this problem viscerally all around you. Those individuals still have to eat, 
still deserve a place to live while the system tries to help them with their problems. Yeah. Yeah, go ahead. No, I was just going to say, I do, I'm late for the news, but a point well made. You know, that employment stabilization program, you know, it just works. I mean, the proof's in the pudding. At the beginning of the year, 170 people signed up, and through very minimal financial incentives, now 40 are no longer on the program. I mean, that is what we need. We need to see policy that works. And it's a pilot that was only in this neck of the woods. That's got to be from coast to coast to coast to coast in this province right away, because it works. While we continue the conversation and the committee work regarding UBI and related matters, Dan, I'll give you the final thoughts before I do unfortunately have to get to the news. Yeah, the last thing I would say is this. When we talk about this conversation about people getting back to work, one of the ways we incentivize people to go to work is by paying them enough to not live below the poverty line to work. It's an awful lot easier to get someone to go to work when they know they're going to be able to pay their bills as opposed to get someone to go to work for a minimum wage, a a thing that wasn't mentioned yesterday in this poverty reduction plan. If they're going to go to work and still be poor, it's not much of an incentive to go to work. And so as we think about universal basic income and as the premier advances what he now claims is a priority for him, as that happens, the conversation around wages in this province needs to follow suit. I appreciate the time as usual, Dan. Thanks for doing this. Thank you, sir. Take care. Bye-bye. Bye. Stan Meads with the Transition House Association. Let's take a break. Brenda, you stay right there. You're next. She's representing the Southwest Coast Alliance. Don't go away. Your voice in Newfoundland and Labrador's biggest conversation. If you want to know what's happening in your province, tune in to Open Line every day. Have your say weekday morning starting at 9 a.m. on Open Line with Patty Daly on your VOCM. Welcome back to the program. Let's go to line number one. Say good morning to Brenda Kitchen with the Southwest Coast Alliance. Good morning, Brenda. You're on the air. Hey, good morning, Patty. Thanks so much for being here. And I'm turning into a big fan of Open Line. I didn't realize how educational it was <laughs> and your ability to bounce from topic to topic. Holy moly. I appreciate um, Yeah, so thanks so much. My pleasure. Welcome back to the show. What's on your mind this morning? Well, last week I heard um, a new word that I hadn't really been familiar with before called NIMBY, not in my backyard. And uh, I got to tell you, we're very, the Southwest Coast Alliance is very uncomfortable with that term. Um, And that actually goes against everything that we stand for. Like, we're looking at, we're called the Southwest Coast Alliance. Um, But we are, you know, we're quickly realizing that what's happening over here on the Southwest Coast is going to impact all of Newfoundland and Labrador. And we're also got our eye on what's happening in Marystown and on on all these other projects. And we're concerned about them, too, because World Energy GH2 is a big wind farm, yes, four farms. But what's happening in Marystown is even bigger with five wind farms. So, you know, the concerns that the Southwest Coast Alliance is for all of the province. And, like, to me and to us, like, NIMBYism actually goes against everything that Newfoundlanders and Labradorians are about. When all that, the tragedy happened in port basque didn't we all bond together and try to help the people of port basque Yeah, but of course, that's a little bit different because we were reacting to an actual emergency disaster. Uh, But the NIMBYism, look, from where I sit, and this is not necessarily about your group or anyone on the southwest coast or on the Port of Port Peninsula, but it has been a thing. Like, for instance, when people are talking about where a transition home would be or where a drug treatment clinic would be or where a massage parlor would be, people often say, I have no problem with it. I just don't think my neighborhood is appropriate for. So that's where the concept is born. 
you know, someone actually said directly to me, who was a resident of the Port of Port Peninsula, that said, I'm not opposed to the industry. I'm just opposed to the footprint to leave on the Port of Port Peninsula. So it's true. 40% of the geographical footprint of the peninsula will be covered by 328 wind turbines. So I get it. And it's not meant to be derogatory, but some people feel that way. I'm not opposed to this. I'm not opposed to that mine, but I don't think this is the right place for it. I don't think my community is the appropriate home for one project or another, one home or another, one drug treatment facility or another. That's where the concept comes from. Well, I got to tell you, again, I feel very uncomfortable with that because there's a lot of discussion about wind energy projects, about the environment. And that's all fine and dandy, but people are really forgetting about the human environment. And we, we really feel that wind, syn- wind turbine syndrome is a real phenomenon. And people are going to have health effects from having winter living nearby these wind farms. And that includes not just on the port-to-port. So when you think about the human environment and not wanting something in your backyard, I don't want it in your backyard either, Patty. If it's not good enough to go in my backyard, it's not good enough to go in your backyard and have an effect on your environment and hurt the people that's living there. And that's what we got to look at. I mean, it's not just about protecting your own backyard. This is about protecting Newfoundland and Labrador against what could be a very poor project on the table. And I got I got to throw one other thing out there. Um, loved all the conversations happening there this morning. And I got to tell you, love MHA Pauline. He's amazing. But there's something that I just do not agree with with these politicians. They keep saying that the project is it's inevitable. This is, you know, this is going to happen. And, well, we strongly feel that this is just a sales strategy that's used throughout the world to push big mega projects like this true is to let people think and, and to continue to say that this is inevitable. It's just a, a ploy to let us think that we have no power. And the Southwest Coast Alliance, like, if we can't uh, if, the, if the Newfoundland government is unable to make good decisions about how to manage our crown lands that could potentially put people at risk, not just our environment, but the people at risk, then the people of Newfoundland and Labrador are going to have to step up together and continue to push back. Because as long as we're in a democracy, these people were elected to protect, preserve, and yes, develop, but not at the sacrifice of the people. And like you say, Patty, I mean, you're talking, I wish I had your knowledge to be able to say, you know, how much money our province is actually going to make from these deals, the projected money, because nothing I'm hearing is worth sacrificing the health and well-being of the people of Newfoundland and Labrador. And I see this as a, I know that we responded to a huge emergency disaster in Port of Ask, but if we proceed... And, and we don't take the right checks and balances. And that's not just for World Energy Project. It has to be for what's going on in Marystown and everywhere else. We're so busy looking at World Energy. We're not looking at Marystown the same. We've got to stand together as Newfoundland and Labrador. And this nimbyism, well, that's fine that Buddy said that he was okay with the project as long as it wasn't on the Port of Port Peninsula. But we need to step back and really look at this from a, a bird's eye and look at the human environment. And if it's not good enough for my backyard, Patty, it's not good enough for you, and we're not going to be pushing it in Marystown or pushing it anywhere else. Those checks and balances have got to be in place. And this is not an inevitable project. That is a sales strategy. And you know what? I'll tell you one more thing. (laughs) We was into the House of Assembly when Mr. Pauline presented 
the petition. And uh, it was a totally an eye-opener for me. And uh, I'm sorry to say, like, I really thought that the House of Assembly was going to be a place for discussion and debate, where Mr. Pauline was going to present our petition and Minister Parsons and, and Bernard Davis and all of them are going to be there looking at them and they're going to be concerned about the cons- what people are saying and we're going to have a debate with some of our smartest leaders in the province. But that didn't happen. I was watching down. I don't even know if they heard what was being said. I'd say for the first 20 minutes to a half an hour, the Liberals were obviously on their phones, not paying attention. Uh, Jerry Byrne, you don't even pretend he don't even have any paper on his desk. It's a, it's, a, it's a joke. It's a mockery what I've seen happen there that day. And there was other people there with petitions, very serious, you know, and it was presented, their petition was about child abuse and presented by one after the other by the NDP leaders and independent leaders. And even then, the Liberal Party down there, they looked like they were having a party. These people were hurt and upset after that House of Assembly meeting that their concerns weren't taken you know, seriously. Uh, so, I've, like, I've got to get to the break, Brenda, but the issue that, yeah. where I think people think this is there's a sense of inevitability here is when there's MOUs signed with uh, international partners and when the province seems yeah. to be so Fail very... Strategy. But listen, but it's, not, yeah. it's not them saying it's inevitable, it's me saying it is because that, everything that they say, everything that they do, you know, a three-year partnership and agreement with the province of BC and this province about what? Green hydrogen. So it feels yeah. like this is whether it be with John Risley or Everwind or ABO or the Bo- or Exploits Valley or Pattern Energy, something is going to get off the ground here. And I've been well, long saying, you know, get this right, is of paramount importance for every reason imaginable. Uh, very last comment to you, Brenda, before I do have to get to the break. <clears throat> well, we're going to say that all of those ploys, like renting office space and signing MOUs, is just another ploy to trick the people in thinking that this is a done deal. And it's not a done deal. It's the people's choice. And if they want to get involved, email protectnl at outlook.com and the Southwest Coast Alliance will help you find your voice no matter where you live in the province. I appreciate your time, Brenda. Thanks for the call. Thank you, Patty. Thank you so much. Take care. All right, there you go. It's Brenda Kitchen with the Southwest Coast Alliance. Final break of the morning. Don't go away. Welcome back to the show. Let's go. Uh, Where? Line number two. And good morning, Charlie. You're on the air. Good morning, Patty. Good morning to you. Patty, before I get to a couple of topics I had there, just a quick comment on uh, the uh, energy thing, the uh, wind energy. Do we know at this point what the uh, final final price? Have they have they ever put out a price for this ammonia? Uh, what it's going to sell for in Germany, and how that will be competitive with other forms of energy over there? Well, I don't imagine until you sign a power purchase agreement that we're going to know anything about price. I don't imagine that's been negotiated quite yet. So at some point, uh, when 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 they consider this project and investors and so on, they must do their own homework on that, or, or they wouldn't proceed, right? They must feel it's uh, low enough that it'll compete with uh, energy prices over there. You can't leave that uh, uh, right till the end. Our knowledge of it, perhaps, but not their planning. Yeah, and I mean, I don't know how we can force their hand to release the uh, contractual details between one private sector company and an and end consumer. Well, I guarantee you one thing. Goldman Sachs is not going to loan you any money unless you have a business model that shows profitability. So, yes, someone knows what the projected earnings would be, projected profit would be, and the potential size of market, of course. I mean, I can't go to the Royal Bank with a, a little itty-bitty small business idea without all of that information. 
I would suggest we we uh, we're entitled to to know this. But in uh, in the event that the market changes, can this wind energy be uh, sold to the grid at at at, at a reasonable profit, or, or can we accommodate that that new energy? Why not? Would be my question, my consideration there. Plus, I don't know how this hasn't been factored in in full. Unless we understand how we're going to provide and ha- understand the interaction with the, our grid between World Energy, Exploits Valley, ABO, uh, Everwind, whoever, until we know that, how can we even consider any other factor, including the environment, including wind turbine syndrome or, or anything else under the sun? So, yes, we can accommodate uh, wind power. We just have to p- potentially build infrastructure to accommodate additional uh, supply to the grid. But short answer would be why not okay um on the on the middle east thing um every, everyone w- would agree that what amass did was inhuman and despicable to to the nth degree right i wonder if they'd agree with what israel is doing now with its bombing and the killing of women and children indiscriminately, would that be just as despicable and inhuman in many people's eyes, I wonder? Uh, Right now, uh, to me, they're committing a war crime uh, over and over, war crimes. Uh, Hospitals there don't have fuel. They've got wounded there on the floors and so on. People with uh, having to amputate uh, legs and, and, and feet without anesthesia, uh, anesthetics. Um, I just feel that what they're doing in response uh, is, is, is vengeance to the nth degree. And I'm wondering uh, how, how many people are holding them to account. I know a lot of people are. I saw an interview by... Uh, a guy named Christoph, I forget his first name now, there recently. He was talking about his encounter with two, two young Palestinians, uh, two young men on the West Bank. I think it was about 30 years ago. And they had aspirations that they could travel anywhere in Israel, by the way, go to Tel Aviv and go to beaches and so on. And they had aspirations of leaving and uh, getting an education abroad and becoming whatever they, uh, their dreams were. I don't know if many people know this, but since I think it's around 2014, 15, 16, that time, uh, Israel has pretty well closed the door on the West Bank, and and that's supposed to be a fairly friendly uh, uh, group toward Israel. With travel, with uh, other restrictions, with all kinds of uh, harassment, and people are saying it's a powder keg in the West Bank because people have lost hope there. That uh, and these are people who are supposed to be uh, on good terms with Israel in terms of uh, uh, well, the Hamas thing. They don't recognize Israel. The PLO does. So again. Uh, if you look at stuff that goes on there in detail rather than just the big events like the Hamas thing, you realize it's a powder keg. One one member of government, by the way, was of the Israeli government, the right-wing government that they have, said that the, the, the solution to the Palestinians would be an atomic bomb in the Gaza Strip. He, he wasn't. Uh, he was just suspended for saying that. So that'll give you some idea of what a lot of them in that right-wing government uh, uh, believe, right? 
the last comment I want to make is on UFOs, unless you want to say something on that. No, that's okay. No, I, I do want to sneak one more call on, so I'll let you get to the uh, UAPs. UAPs. Uh, about 18 months ago, they had a congressional group uh, struck to, uh, to look into this on, 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 on their Biden's watch. There was a U.S. intelligence officer, Dr. Charles Grush. He alleged, he alleged the government had evidence of intact and partially intact alien vehicles. He also uh, said that people who had been harmed or injured in an effort to cover up this information. Now, just uh, recently, the guy heading up that uh, group, AARO, whatever that means, anyway, it's, it's, it's the UFO group, Dr. Sean Kirkpatrick is stepping down. And this was the explosive, th- explosive thing he said. He was, he was head of, well, of the Pentagon UFO office. He admitted that there could be some truth in the whistleblower's shocking claims that the U.S. government is hiding evidence of aliens. Some of these claims, he said, he admitted could be true. I thought that was pretty good for a little bit of edging from, from that guy, right? And they also say that non-human biologics were found at a crash site. They're talking about a safe and transparent reporting process, a.k.a. whistleblower protection for folks in this world. There was all sorts of uh, efforts to silence possible witnesses that were apparently were kept away from congre- uh, pardon me, congressional hearings and the like. So there's a bit of smoke and fire there to be talked about. Then, you know, it's the uh, the physics phenomena of supersonic speeds and things that can't be explained with current technology understood by the American military who understand all the technology in the world. Uh, Charlie, I appreciate the time. I'm going to sneak Elizabeth on for a quick bouquet. Okay, sir. Thank you. Thank you. Take care. Bye. All right. Final word this morning goes to Elizabeth on four. Elizabeth, you're on the air. Yes. Good morning, Patty. Morning. Uh, I'd like to send out a special thanks to all the all the people that participated in this uh, program they had yesterday for Kids Eat Smart. Yep. And the wonderful job they done, and for all the donations that came in for the program, Kids Eat Smart. It was a big success. I mean, around $380,000. The generosity sometimes really overwhelms me because there's tough times out there, but people are still kind, you know, and unions and service groups and businesses and towns. So, yeah, it it was a great day. Yes. Uh, And I I give every year when I get my thing in the mail. And it really goes for a good cause. It sure does. And I'm glad people participated yesterday. And I'm sure they appreciate your bouquet, Elizabeth. Yes. Thank you very much, Patty. You have a good day, you You, and Dave. You too. Thank you. Take care. Take care. Uh, bye-bye. Bye. Here we go. All right, last word to Elizabeth. Uh, big thanks to everyone who supports the program, and we will indeed pick up this conversation again tomorrow morning right here on VOCM and Big Land FM's Open Line. On behalf of the producer, David Williams, I'm your host, Patty Daly. Have yourself a safe, fun, happy day. We'll talk in the morning. Bye-bye.